Hello, and welcome to the Nodcast podcast, the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire one chapter a week. I'm one of your hosts, Jeff, better known as Brittany Beefish. And I'm your other host, Emmett, better known as Poor Quentin. And welcome to our 34th episode of the Nodcast entitled Mountain High, Valley Low. An analysis of a Game of Thrones, Catelyn 6. Man, good chapter title, man. In which Catelyn Stark makes it out of the mountains of the moon to the Vale proper, only to have to climb yet another mountain. She can't win despite doing nothing wrong ever. Good, good, good. This episode is brought to you by all of our Lord's Commander, Mark N., Timothy W., Hayden J., and Wolfman Zach. Thank you, gentlemen, very, very much. Thank you, as always. Our spoiler warning, as we talk about in all of our podcasts, we'll be talking about all published books, as the five novels, the three duck and egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones TV show. Anything and everything. And as a quick special note that this episode will have spoilers for both the Winds of Winter particularly and the novellas and histories that are associated with the Song of Ice and Fire universe. So the first thing we wanted to bring up in this particular episode was our initial reactions to a sample dropped from the volume one of Fire and Blood, George R. R. Martin's upcoming history on House Targaryen and all their dragony weirding ways. <laughs> uh, Martin gave us a sample regarding the uh, passage of Good Queen Alysanne uh, yes. in her time, time in the North that would eventually lead to her creation of the new gift. It was a passage all about uh, King Jaehaerys having to stay behind and handle some uh, headache-worthy diplomacy problem in Essos, where they were coming to King's Landing for arbitration, and Queen Alysanne was going on ahead, and the passage covers her arrival in White Harbor, her time with House Manderley, her meeting with the delightfully Stannis-esque Alaric Stark, her kind of foibles with his family, eventually traveling to the Wall, and her handling of Northern politics. I really enjoyed the read. I think I loved teasing out certain parallels to the Song of Ice and Fire, as a lot of people did. On yes. social media and the initial reaction to it, but I also just thought it was wonderfully written. Really great character moments for Alison and the people she met in the North, and it felt uh, felt kind of grounded, and not at all stiff in the way some of the histories do, especially from a maester's pen, so to speak. Yeah, I agree with that. You know, when I read Sons of the Dragon last year in the Book of Swords anthology, I read it. And my reaction was not terribly positive. In fact, I felt it was the weakest output that George has given in the Song of Ice and Fire world. I felt it was much more of this happened than that happened than this happened, and that George kind of stripped out some of the more interesting stuff that could have occurred in that chapter. So I was a little cautious, maybe, about Fire and Blood Volume 1, if that was what we're going to get, is that you know, a trans, uh, transpiring of events going from, from Targaryen king and queen to Targaryen king and queen to pretender and so forth. But I was very pleased to find that this sample was nothing like that. In fact, it was full of all sorts of allusions to the main series. It had great characters. You know, we had Alaric Stark, who was someone that I don't think we had ever really known before. Maybe we knew him by name. Uh, on a family tree, but actually getting introduced to him was something that was really unique and special. And I felt that he was a, a cool character that added something to the series itself, as well as being, of course, a Stannis analog uh, and predecessor and much the way that Maekar Targaryen was in later Targaryen history. So I really enjoyed this sample from Fire and Blood Volume 1. And it does actually make me excited for that, for the book itself. And one of the things that Emmett and I are going to do for Fire and Blood Volume 1 is that in November, our Patreon-only episode is going to be all about Fire and Blood Volume 1. It's going to be a full-out review, analysis, theorizing, 
and how all these characters potentially tie into the main series and what we're going to be seeing in the Winds of Winter and Dream of Spring. So that's exciting. So if you guys have not checked out our Patreon, of course, check it out at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. Find other sample episodes and everything like that. But we have one other thing that we're also going to do in relation to Fire and Blood. Em and I are both going to do this together. Indeed, we're both going to hopefully be in the flesh when uh, George R. R. Martin does his uh, one book launch party for Fire and Blood. He's going to be at uh, Lowe's Jersey Theater in uh, Jersey City in a talk hosted by Word Bookstores, along with, I believe it's John Hodgman is, John is Hodgman, going, to be, yeah. going to be interviewing him. And George R. R. Martin, of course, is also going to be taking some questions uh, from the audience, including uh, us two. So... <laughs> If you're in the area, of course, hope to see you there. I've already seen a couple people I know in the fandom who've uh, said they're going to be there as well, so that'll be yeah. delightful. Uh, but yeah, that'll be it's going to be an all fire and blood November here on the Nauticast, both checking out George R. R. Martin in the flesh, and then immediately thereafter talking about it on our Patreon episode. So our Patreon episode uh, this past month in September was Stump the Chumps Part One, where we took questions from you all. Uh, Stump the Chumps Part Two will be out later in October, and then our uh, next Patreon episode in November will be all our thoughts on the then released Fire and Blood Volume One. Yeah, it should be a really good time. I'm looking forward to all the new stuff that's coming up from George. And then, as we all know, a week after Fire and Blood comes out, the wind's a winner. No, actually, actually, that's not coming out a week afterwards. That's just the law, Jeff. That's how it has to work. The publishers finally finally got on him, and I 100% believe it this time. There we go. There's there's no there's no chance for, uh, for error at this point from either of us in our predictions for when the wind's a winner comes out. So... Uh, again, if you guys are in the area, check us out. If you guys are not in the area, feel free to check us out too. I mean, some folks fly from as far away as California and other places from Europe. I, I've seen some talk of some of uh, my friends from the fandom coming over from Europe to come see George. And we'll be there. Maybe we'll see you guys there too. So we're looking forward to that. So our question from the week comes from Sir Grant, the scribe, who asks, What curveballs do you think George will throw into the Winds of Winter? I think we're going to get the unexpected. Hmm. And what do you think? What are some curveballs that we're going to see in the Winds of Winter from George? What are your predictions for curveballs? I take a drag on a cigarette and I say, what's unexpected, Jeff, really? <laughs> what does that mean when you break it down? No, I mean, part of when we talk about Winds, I think, is honestly at this point, is that there's an intense amount of community energy and action around, quote-unquote, decoding the series, that there just wasn't there before yeah. A Storm of Swords or even A Feast for Crows or even A Dance with Dragons. It's just True. ballooned to a huge degree since the show became a thing. It reminds me of kind of uh, Battlestar Galactica or the first season of Westworld in that way, in which there was a kind of a forum-driven intensity about certain plot points that the writers didn't realize how quickly they get caught up on. And I don't think Martin has to worry about it in the same way, because he's been building a lot of these twists in from the very beginning. But I do think that a lot of what's going to happen in wins, as crazy as it might seem to most of us, I'm, I'm betting there's going to be someone who's going to have predicted every major beat. That's the prediction I'm saying right now. There will be nothing that went unpredicted by anybody. Because, I mean, he brought up, you know, the, the curveball of Egan in Dance, but there were people who predicted before Dance with That's Dragons true. that we would be seeing an undead Aegon Targaryen who had turned out not to have died. There's some people who's been theorizing that from the very beginning when we learned that uh, the babe's face was not seen, not recognizable, mm -hmm. that uh, Tywin Lannister presented before Robert in Crimson Cloak. So, you know, in terms of what's unexpected to a large group of people or what elements seem like Martin is specifically putting into play that can be used in a variety of different ways, uh, the whole Reach area, the Reach Ironborn plot, I think is rife with a lot of mm -hmm. uh, interesting, unexpected possibilities. Euron, as a character, has just kind of barely come out as what he is in The Forsaken, which is, of course, from The Winds of Winter. Uh, there's a lot of weird elements in Old Town, like the glass candles and the high tower studying magic. And 
that faceless man that no one can really fully agree what that part of the story is leading up to. Right. I've, I've often noticed discussion about that part of the story about the, the faceless man pretending to be Pate is one where a lot of people just shrug. Um, and then you throw in a character like Willis Terrell, who we haven't even seen yet, but Martin has said is, has an important role to play and has built up quite a bit. I think that's an area of the story where I'm expecting a lot of people to be surprised, including me, and I've uh, uh, written and thought a lot about that part <laughs> of the story. No, I think those are those are great examples of, of curveballs that we're going to see. I, I think you make a great point, though, in that you know you and I, and I'm assuming most of the people who are listening to this, are kind of deep in the fandom, right? We've read the major theories and even a lot of the minor ones. We've discussed the character arcs that we see evolving in the winds of weather, in the winds of winter, whether it's going to be Daenerys or John, Tyrion, Aegon, John Connington, Arianne. All of these characters have been theorized a lot about. Now, I do think that there is a potential for curveballs, especially in something like Bran's storyline. Because sure. while the show did show us Bran going into the cave, learning some from the Three-Eyed Raven, I think we're going to get a bit more about Greensight and about Warging and more of the history of the others than what we saw in the show. And I'm still of a divided mind whether the creation of the others came as a result of the Children of the Forest potentially trying to stop the invasion of the First Men and to win that war. That's a possibility, but I think there's going to be a lot more depth involved in what Martin is going to say about it because the others remain an extraordinarily mysterious element in the story that we just don't know a lot about. So I feel like we're going to see a lot about the others and those we're going to see some curveballs there. Now, one of those curveballs is not going to be that the others are actually the good guys and mankind is the bad guys in this story because that's that's not the story that George seems to be telling. And of course, we did talk about that in I believe our very first episode in the, in the Not A Cast podcast. So I think we're going to see a lot of the others. I think I like your idea about the Reach being an area rife for whatever going down there, things that we don't even know. And I think the Faceless Men also being in the Reach, but also in, but also in Bravos too, uh, we might get more information about whether they were like the cause of the doom as opposed to kind of it being more ambiguous in the world of ice and fire and, and in a feast for crows and a dance with dragons. But I think we're going to potentially see a lot more of the foundation of the faceless men, learn more about their magic. And that's something that I don't see a lot of speculation about and a lot of theorizing about. So I think I'm looking forward to a lot of those aspects and what George might have in store. But yeah, I like your idea of the reach. I like the far north as well, brand storyline and bravos. That's where I think the major curveballs are going to come for the super fans. But I think a lot of the events from the story are going to be like major, like, oh my goodness, what a twist. Stannis Baratheon won the Battle of Ice. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Sir Sir Robert Strong is going to be Cersei's champion in, in the battle or whatever. Oh, and oh my goodness, Aegon and Arianne get married. What a twist sort of thing. And I, and I say that like kind of sarcastically, but, you know, we have no, had seven years to analyze exactly. you know, Dance of Dragons and Defeats for Crows. So we do have a pretty good idea of what's going to ex- transpire on some of these things in places where George seems to be pointing at future events from those books, especially in the Winds of Winter. I think there are, you make a couple of great points. I think there's certainly room for surprises, especially in areas where the show went differently or the show didn't cover. Those are, yeah. I think, inherently bound to surprise uh, more people than areas where it's going to track the show pretty clearly. And I think that's also a very good point that uh, Brand's POV is pretty rife with potential surprises by nature of his powers and the stuff he's exploring. I also think we're going to get a more complicated backstory of the others that involves more 
agency on the part of the humans rather than just being the raw material for the children alone because if humans are involved and it's tied into human sorcery that fits better with like the fact that the long night showed up everywhere not just in westeros where the children are If, if humans are directly involved in the process and could bring it about themselves or could learn about it then it makes more sense that it also shows up in essos so I imagine Bran will probably be getting into more into issues like that. Warging and Greensight, like you say. I also want to see him use, like, earth magic. Like, that's something the that children are, are connected to with, like, the bringing down the, you know, the, the hammer. Yeah. Uh, hammer of the waves. So if, if, especially if Bran is supposed to be involved with, you know, rebuilding Winterfell, given the state it's currently in, eh, I would love to see him learn some, you know, uh, Avatar The Last Airbender style powers like that. <laughs> Which, of course, I understand would not translate into a live-action show with a limited budget. So that, that is a potential area for surprise. I look forward to that. We're gonna, I guess we're going to have to see. I mean, you, you, I mean, as you guys all well, well know by now, you know, George did throw a surprise at me when reading The Forsaken back in 2016 because, oh my goodness, Euron Greyjoy is not following Victarion onto Marine. He's actually going to be in the Reach doing his thing, as Emmett rightfully predicted. But I was like, oh <laughs> my gosh, what a curveball, you know? I didn't make him do this, folks. I'm, I didn't. We didn't discuss beforehand him bringing out the penance for this. Jeff still feels so poorly about this. It's the only time you've ever been wrong, Jeff. You have I'll to let feel, it go. He, yes, that is the, the only one time. time. Of, the one time ever in, in my life. entire life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, but, but yes, I was right. So, well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. I mean, it'll, it'll be exciting, and uh, I'm sure if it comes out next year or the year after that, it'll be uh, interesting to look at, and especially to compare against the. Uh, the output of the show and what the show provided for us and see the different directions that the show went as compared to how George goes. And I guess it's going to be something that we'll, we'll enjoy and look and get into a little bit, not to go back too much into that, um, that excerpt from fire and blood. But one, the one thing that was a bit of a surprise that was a curveball that I didn't necessarily see coming was that there's a potential from the letter that Queen Alysanne sends to Jaehaerys that dragons can't cross north of the Wall. Uh, she makes mention there that her own dragon, Silverwing, is that her, her dragon? Silverwing, yes, indeed. Silverwing, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> go on, go on, yes. That Silverwing kept shying away from the Wall whenever she tried to steer him or her to the Wall. So again, it's possible that that's something we're going to see in the Winds of Winter where potentially Daenerys is like, I can stop the others and she can't because uh, it, the, the Wall is warded against both magical creatures coming south, namely the others, as well as magical creatures coming north, like the dragons. Yes, that was a fascinating little detail, which is in direct contrast to how it worked in the show. So I'm looking forward to seeing how that pays off. If that prevents Daenerys from playing a role right away, or if it means she has to like make some kind of negotiation when she might otherwise not, or that, or it just means that she has to wait for the wall to come down before she yeah. can even remotely begin to deal with the others, which would be interesting. That that would be a nice twist if you know the wall coming down is the others' great victory, but it could also be what exposes them to their doom. I think that would that would really be interesting to see. So, yeah, yeah. That, def- that definitely stood out to I think to everyone when they were rereading that excerpt. So can't wait to see the payoff there. Same here, man. Same here. So, thank you, Sir Grant, the scribe, for the question. Again, if you guys are interested in submitting questions to us that we will answer, please subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash notacast, A-S-O-I-F, at our $10 sworn sword above level, and we would love to answer questions from you guys. And, of course, we did answer some, half of your questions in our first episode of Stump the Chumps Part 1. Part 2 is going to be all about our story and predictions-based questions that we got from you guys about A Song of Ice and Fire, and that'll be coming your way at the end of October. But today's episode is about Catelyn Stark, who, by the way, has done nothing wrong ever once in her entire life, as always. And here's her synopsis for her sixth 
chapter. Sir Donna Wainwood gives Catelyn Stark a chilly greeting, letting her know that she should have sent word that they were coming. And oh, by the way, did you know the High Road is not safe anymore? Yeah, I think Catelyn knows. Six men had died bringing her nearly to the Bloody Gate, but it's more sad than even that. Her memories of them were fading, and she was even having a hard time recalling their names. But the danger had made it hard to remember even anything at all. Her heart was turning to stone. Hmm. About that. In fact, they had thought that Donald's party was their doom. Instead, they'd been their salvation. Donald ruminates on how he'd taken 100, how he would take 100 knights up to the mountains to teach the clansmen a sharp lesson, but Lysa had forbidden her knights from leaving the Vale of Arryn, and Donald really isn't sure why they're all up there doing fucking nothing. What are they defending the Vale from? Catelyn thinks that it's probably the Lannisters, right? But she keeps her tongue about her. She glances behind and sees Tyrion and Bronn behind them. The dwarf had survived the journey and proved cunning as well, and she's troubled by Bronn's constant companionship with Tyrion. But, you know, now there's 40 men are around Catelyn's now smaller party, but Tyrion is still a bit unafraid, seemingly. Could I be wrong, Catelyn wonders, not for the first time? Could he be innocent after all, of Bran and John Aaron and all the rest? And if he was, what did that make her? Six men had died to bring him here. But she pushes her doubts away, telling Donald that she needs Maester Coleman to treat the wounds of Sir Roderick. Well, that's not going to fly. Coleman has been ordered to remain at the Eyrie, but a Septon is at the Bloody Gate. He contends Sir Roderick, but though Catelyn was wary of the power of prayer and healing Sir Roderick, she doesn't really see an alternative at this point. Up ahead, though, the Bloody Gate looms against a narrow pass in the mountains. A knight rides out from the gate with a cloak of tully red and blue and a shiny black fish and gold and obsidian, pinning the cloak on his shoulder. The badass, amazing knight asks who's attempting to pass the Bloody Gate. Donald says, it's a me, a Donald Warario. Donald one need one. Shit, I can't even do this fucking thing. <laughs> you got it, buddy. I it's believe a, in you. Ah, oh, thanks, man. It's a B, a Donald Wayne Wood, yo. And also Catelyn Stark and her companions. There you go. Well done, brother. I'm very proud of you. I'm very proud. <laughs> thanks. I appreciate that. The man lifts his visor and speaks with a hoarse, smoky voice. I thought the lady looked familiar. You are far from home, little cat. That voice belongs to, another, to none other than Sir Brendan Tully, Catelyn's uncle. She smiles, telling him that Brendan's home is in her heart. She asks that he remove his helmet. He does, warning her that age hasn't improved his appearance, but he's lying. Though he's older with gray hair that, replaces, that is replacing his auburn, he still looks the gallant man Catelyn had last seen him as. Brendan asks if Cat had sent word to Lysa. No, there really wasn't enough time, but um, yeah, she's bringing the storm anyways. Sorry about that. Donald asks if they can pass, and Brendan gives, him, gives them entry. As they cross the gate, we get some backstory on the bloody gate. A dozen armies had dashed themselves against the gate itself. That's kind of interesting. A little bit of potential for some interesting stuff there in the future. But beyond the gate, Catelyn sees a wide valley opening up. It's lush, green, and bordered by tall mountains. And though the land was at a high elevation, it was still a fertile land, perhaps as fertile as Highgarden. Catelyn stops up to admire the scene before, and Brandon comes up and points out where the Eyrie is, way up there in the mountains. And then we get some of Catelyn's excellent poetic side. Seven towers, Ned had told her, like white daggers thrust into the belly of the sky. So high you can stand on the parapets and look down on the clouds. I don't know, man. I feel like you get the real sense that George is really in love with like this place because he is really going to indulge his descriptions in this chapter. Oh, yeah. Agreed 100%. Yeah. So, Brennan states that they could be up at the base of the mountain by evening, but warns it would take, an other, it would take another day to get all the way up to the top. Roderick informs everyone that he's really too wounded to go any further, so Catelyn gives him leave to remain at the Bloody Gate and rest on up. Brendan, Catelyn, and Tyrion will head on up without him. Actually, scratch that. Marillion wants to come too. Oh yeah, and Bronn. He's in it to win it. 
Catelyn sighs at all of them and agrees to their company. Fresh mounts gotten. The party sets off for the Eyrie. As they progress, Brendan asks Catelyn about this so-called storm she's bringing, and Catelyn tells all. Brendan listens silently, his frown spreading across his face. This leads Catelyn to give us some Brendan Tully backstory. Five years younger than Hoster, he'd been fighting his brother since as long as Catelyn can remember. Catelyn remembers how he got his Blackfish moniker. It came when Hoster and Brendan were arguing, and Hoster declared that Brendan was the black goat of House Tully, and Brendan had replied that a black fish would be more fitting. He'd taken the personal coat of arms since that day. The two brothers had only reconciled at Lysa's wedding to John Aaron when he would be heading out to serve Lysa at the Erie. Hoster and Brendan hadn't spoken since. Your father must be told. If the Lannisters should march, Winterfell is remote, and the Vale walled up behind its mountains. But River Run lies right in their path. Catelyn had similar fears to Brendan. And what's the mood of the Vale, she asked her uncle. Everyone's pretty fucking pissed. And it's not that they're pissed about Jamie being named War of the East. They also think that John and Aaron was murdered, though they're not really saying it out loud. And then there's Sweet Robin. He's six, sickly, and perhaps too weak to take his father's seat as Lord Aaron. Worse still, Lysa isn't helping things. She's holding out on a potential new marriage for some odd reason. We know why. And while no one can fault her, Brendan believes that Lysa is playing at being open to marriage. Perhaps she intends to Cersei it on up at the Eyrie and rule in her son's name before he reaches his maturation. But that's not all that's going wrong in the Vale. Lysa is, um, she's not well. Her marriage wasn't happy and she'd had stillborns, stillborns and miscarriages, and she only lives for that sickly child and is always afraid for him. Afraid of what the Lancers are up to or something. Oh, and you brought the Lancers to our doorstep. That's not great, Catelyn. Not great at all. And your protests that he's here as a captive are belied by the fact that he's carrying an axe and has a sellsword accompanying him. But then we're back on the road and finally into the valley itself and up ahead the gates of the moon. By the time they make it there, though, it's dark. But no worries. They'd sent someone ahead and they can be let in. But before that, look up, Catelyn. Ah, uh, yeah, it's time for George to describe some shit. <laughs> Catelyn raised her eyes up and up and up. At first, all she saw was stone and trees, the looming mass of the great mountain shrouded in light as black as a starless sky. Then she noticed the glow of distant fires well above them, a tower keep built upon the steep side of a mountain, its lights like orange eyes staring down from above. That's really, I mean, in terms of like writing, that's just really, that's just gorgeous. So George, you get a cookie this week. Tyrion's also looking up too. The Aarons must not be overly fond of company. If you're planning on making us climb the mountain in the dark, I'd rather you kill me here. But how are they all going to get up the mountain? Well, mules will get them up the first part, and then they'll need to take up steps carved into the face of the mountain. And after that, they'll need to go by foot or basket up the last bit of the way. Tyrion says that he'll go by foot if Catelyn is planning to go that route. He's got that Lannister pride, after all. That provokes an angry retort from Catelyn that it's not pride, it's arrogance. Tyrion shoots back that he's not the arrogant one. That's Jaime, whereas he's, an innocent, he's as innocent as a little lamb. But the drawbridge comes down and Lord Nestor Royce, High Steward of the Vale and Keeper of the Gates of the Moon, greets them. Catelyn asks for Nestor's hospitality. He gives it, but uh, yeah. It'd be nice and all to keep it up here, but uh, but Lysa kind of wants you all the way up at the area, quick, fast, in a hurry. In the fucking dark, Brendan asks. That's madness. Everyone's going to break their necks. Well, the mules know the way, Sir Brendan, a 17-year-old girl, says, stepping out from the dark and into our hearts. It's Maya Stone, and we're all deeply in love already. She's going to get Callan up, no worries. Her boyfriend Michael says that Maya is half a goat anyways, and she hasn't failed Nestor Royce yet in bringing folks up the mountain. Well, Catelyn will trust this Maya then. 
Tyrion will remain with Nestor, though, while Catelyn is ascending the mountain. But anyways, after that, they're off and up through the pines. And hey, Catelyn, don't hold the reins of the mules so tight. And no, 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 we won't hold torches. They just blind the mules. But time for a little love chat, little girl time, if you will. Who's that Michael, Catelyn asks? Why, he's Maya's one true love. He's Michael of House Redford. Well, you know, Catelyn, as amazing as she is, does engage in a little mix of class snobbery and realism when she thinks that, that Maya cannot marry Michael. He's of a higher social class and old houses don't marry bastards. But Catelyn thinks that Maya talking about Michael sounds familiar. She sounds like Sansa. But we're back to ascending the Dark Mountain. Catelyn grows more afraid, but the mules prove sure-footed, and then we're on up to the next way castle known as Stone. Inside, skewers of meat and onions are brought to her, and she eats. They receive fresh new mounts, and they're off again. But because this is getting, you know, this is getting a little bit long, let's just sketch out a few details. Emmett's going to go into it more in depth in a little bit, until Catelyn gets all the way up to the Eyrie. All right, step one. They get up to the castle known as Snow. They only stay for a minute before hanging out with new mules. Step two, the wind picks up. Catelyn is very afraid, and so she does not look down. She looks up. Step three, they approach a saddle and have to cross. A saddle is actually a terrain feature, if you guys are curious about that. And they have to cross. Catelyn is terrified, but Maya helps her through. There's a lot more to talk about there. Well, I promise that Emma's really going to get into depth there. And then finally, just before getting to the Eyrie, Catelyn arrives at Skyway Castle, and there's snow here. The Eyrie is close now, just about 600 feet above them. Catelyn is terrified and exhausted. She asks to be taken up by basket the rest of the way. Whew. Man, I'm, I'm sorry. There's a lot of beautiful imagery in that scenes, and there's a lot of great story moments there, but this is getting long, man. Okay, so in the Eerie, Catelyn is greeted by Varys Eden, who says that he'll send word to rouse, to rouse Lysa. That's nice. Varys escorts Catelyn to Lysa, who's awaiting Catelyn in her solar. Lysa pretends to be happy to see Catelyn, but Catelyn sees that the five years since she last saw her sister have been rough to her. Lysa had grown heavy and pale, while her blue eyes are roomy and never still. Catelyn lies and tells Lysa that she looks well, but a little bit tired. Lysa notices the others around her and dismisses them. And then Lysa goes apeshit on Catelyn. She yells at Catelyn, demanding to know why Catelyn has brought her quarrels with the Lannisters to the Vale. Catelyn is mystified. Well, goddamn, they're only my quarrels because you sent that fucking letter, Lysa. You know the one. The one where you said John and Aaron had been poisoned. Well, that ain't Lysa's story. According to Lysa, she sent the letter to warn Catelyn to stay away from the quarrels of Westeros. Man, what a shitty way of warning the Starks to stay away, Lysa. But we all know we all know the truth, anyways. Lysa is interrupted, though, from speaking further by the appearance of the Lord of the Eyrie, Robert Sweet Robin Aaron, enters the scene and immediately shows us that not all kids are cute. Sick, weak, and trembling, <laughs> Lysa introduces him to Catelyn, saying that this is the kid that John Aaron was talking about when he was saying the seed is strong. Sure. Anyways, we, we should really get back to the Lannisters. They could no, 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 not in front of the baby. But Lysa, he's not just a kid. He's the goddamn Lord of the Eyrie. There's no time for delicacy. The Lannisters are quiet. You're scaring him. <laughs> Man, Lysa's really annoying. And also, just well, we'll talk about that. Good Lord, Lysa. Catelyn is angry, and rightfully so. Shit is fucked up in Westeros, and the veil is in the hands of this kid and his mother. It's troubling. But, you know... Let's add a little bit of bizarro to this troubling aspect. Lysa pops her tits out of her gown and Robert Aaron begins feeding at Lysa's breast. Jeez. God. Oh, man. Yeah, this is weirder and worse than Catelyn thought. And though Lysa's all but like, we're safe here, Catelyn knows better. No one is safe from the Lannisters. But what has Lysa to do with Tyrion Lannister now that Catelyn has so rudely brought the dwarf to the Vale? Sweet Robin asks if he's a bad man. When Lysa replies in the affirmative, Sweet Robin has a thought. 
make him fly. And perhaps they would, Lysa assures the boy. And that is the Game of Thrones Catelyn 6, a long as fuck chapter full of glorious world building and fucked up character moments with Lysa and Sweet Robin. <sighs> Still kind of makes my skin crawl. Well, what did you think, man? I think you deserve several gold stars, sir, just for getting through a chapter that long and with some truly weird imagery at the end and some wonderful play acting with the various voices. I had no idea you had such dramatic range, brother. Clearly, you missed your calling. I started in, in the fifth grade play. I was uh, I was Reuben, one of the shepherds. No, of yeah, I was Reuben, one of the shepherds who who saw Jesus in the manger at, at the church play in the fifth grade. So, well, your your talent has only sprung from there. So, well done, well done. <laughs> yeah. So, as you can kind of tell from Jeff's description of it, Catelyn Six is something of an oddball. Uh, all of her other chapters to date in Game of Thrones have been fairly plot centric. You can point to the event, the contribution to the larger plot in each chapter. Catelyn One, Death of John Arryn. Catelyn 2, Lysa's accusation that the mm-hmm. Littlefingers killed John Aaron. Catelyn 3, the cat's paw attack on Bran's life. Catelyn 4, Littlefinger framing Tyrion for the cat's paw attack on Bran's life. Catelyn 5, <laughs> Catelyn snatches up Tyrion in response to that accusation. It's all very, but you know, everything leads to each beat in, in its proper order. Yeah. Catelyn 6, it starts to slow down a little bit, and it's much more focused on world building and character introductions, but... It does so in such an exquisite fashion that I really can't call it a step down. It reminds me of something I said about a lot of the earlier chapters in this book, that we're just establishing Winterfell and the Targaryens in exile and the, the, you know, the Baratheon monarchy, that if Martin easily could have messed a lot of that world building up and then a lot of the yeah. stuff to come would not have worked as well as it does because it would be on a semi-shaky foundation. And the same <laughs> thing goes here because to get you know kind of technical about it, There are, you know, nine regions in Westeros, if you want to break it down. There's the North, the Vale, the Riverlands, the Westerlands, the Iron Islands, the Crownlands, the Stormlands, the Reach, and Dorne. Now, for a variety of reasons, three of those have tended to get the lion's share of chapters in the series, namely the Crownlands, the Riverlands, and the North in that Mm -hmm. order. The other ones tend to either get their own little distinct, discrete side plots, like Dorne and the Iron Islands in A Feast for Crows, or they are detours that characters pass through on their way to their actual climaxes, like Storm's End in A Clash of Kings, or The Veil here. So Martin does not have as much time with these other kingdoms as he does... Like, he had a dozen chapters at Winterfell. He, he budgeted a dozen chapters at the beginning of this book to describe Winterfell, the characters therein, get us used to it. He spends a lot of time in King's Landing in the middle of this book, getting us acclimated to it, how it works, how it feels, who the minor characters are. He does not have that much time when it comes to... Dorne or the Iron Islands or the Vale. Yeah. So the first first couple chapters he spends in one of these places, a lot hinges on them in terms of getting the audience engaged with anything else that's going to happen there because we have to know who these people are and what this situation is to immediately clue into what our major characters are doing here because they're never going to be here for long. All of which is to say that, again, a lot is hinging on this kind of deceptively slight chapter in terms of getting us invested in the Vale. And I think in terms of imagery, in terms of the minor character introductions, in terms of the themes of the conversation, I think he I think he basically knocks it out of the park. I really this is a favorite chapter of mine in a different way from the other Catalan chapters, but uh, I really enjoyed rereading it. I, I enjoyed it as well. I thought it was an excellent chapter. Uh, I want to go back to something you were talking about about how the first five Catlin chapters are all plot beats one after the other after the other. What I think is really fascinating what Martin does in Catlin's case, and this is a good place to compare it to Eddard Stark. He does the plot in the first five Catlin chapters, and then he kind of slows the story down in Catlin six and focuses so much on the character of who Catelyn Stark is and establishing a set piece that is going to be important for the next few Catelyn and Tyrion chapters. 
this is in kind of in contrast to Eddard Stark, where you spend seven chapters in buildup. And then last week, of course, we did Eddard 8, where the plot actually kind of takes off there and Eddard Stark kind of starts moving. And then, of course, in Eddard 9, we have that famous uh, con- confrontation between Jamie Lannister and Eddard Stark and in the streets of King's Landing. What this chapter does, I think, for me more than anything else, is that it sets up Catelyn's future arc because George knows at this point in writing Game of Thrones that Catelyn Stark is going to be surviving to the next few books. So he has the opportunity to set some more character foundation for Catelyn because she does, she remains a pivotal character in, of course, the Game of Thrones and also into A Clash of Kings and A Storm of Swords. What I think is cool, though, is that, you know, for Eddard Stark, we know that he's going to die at the end of this book. So he spends seven chapters essentially building this character up before he starts kicking the plot off. And, of course, continues to also build up the character of Eddard Stark and build the story around him. But, you know, of course, you have seven chapters of build up here. You've got five chapters of plot for Catelyn. And then you have basically this chapter serves as a story. And then we're back onto the plot when you have the um, her next chapter is what? Yeah, it's the duel. Yeah, it's the duel. So you pick up with the plot immediately afterwards. But here it's great for George to kind of like set down a a little bit of foundation for Catelyn, especially some of the stuff we're going to be talking about towards the theorizing and foreshadowing groundwork piece of it. It does help set a lot of what's going to be done for Catelyn going forward in terms of her plot of Stoneheart, in terms of, of how she's feeling and how this kind of melancholy starts to sit over her for her remaining chapters. And here we are, we kind of get that story setting that, that George does so well here. Yeah, I think that's a great comparison to Ned's earlier chapters. And uh, as you say, it can be done this way because Catelyn is someone we're going to be living with in the Clash of Kings and the Storm of Swords, and she makes several critical decisions in those books that are founded on the kind of desperation and sense of uncertainty induced in a Game of Thrones, whereas Ned, this is his one shot, so you got to build it up before he goes, right. or you're never going to get another chance of doing so. And I think you also make a real good point of that in terms of the structure of the book, that for the first, if you divide Game of Thrones up into roughly three acts, for the first act, the plot is really being driven by Catelyn, or at least in Catelyn chapters, yep. uh, as, as you were saying, going through those first five. Then, then Ned in King's Landing becomes the major center uh, in, in the middle third of the book, in the last third, Ned pretty much drops out, and while there is there are a lot that still happens in Catelyn chapters, I would argue that the most kind of momentum-driven central plot becomes Danny in the last yes. third of the book, because yes. that's when you get Cal Drogo's prepared invasion, that's when you get his collapse, Miri Mazdur, uh, everything in the tent, the birth of the dragons, that stuff really becomes all of a sudden like the defining storyline of the book. So yeah, we're seeing Catelyn kind of take a backseat in terms of narrative urgency here, but I agree that Martin is doing a lot of excellent character work that kind of... Make, makes it worthwhile and makes it memorable, even though there's you can't say this is what happened in Catelyn Six. It doesn't really have that moment because, as we'll get into the end, the end of this chapter is is kind of a joke more than it is a <laughs> legitimate plot point in itself, as you kind of alluded to in your synopsis, sir. Agreed, agreed, agreed. But before we get to the end of the chapter, we do have to cover some of the early parts of this chapter. So, of course, as we as I talked about a few minutes ago, what happens at the start of this chapter is that Catelyn is speaking with. A extremely minor character in the form of Sir Donald Wainwood. But even though he's minor, there's some important aspects of his characterization which help to, again, illustrate a point that Martin is making over and over again in A Game of Thrones. Exactly. I think the overall mood going into this chapter is these competing impulses of deliverance and devastation. On the one hand, Catelyn is saved. Her party is saved. Her, the remaining people who got her this far... They thought they were going to go down for one last fight against the Klansmen, but then it turned out to be the Knights of the Vale, so they have made it to their goal. But on the other hand, the mood is just so despairing, and Catelyn is focused on what they've lost. Was it all for nothing? Sir Roderick is horribly wounded. Uh, you know, it, and as we'll get into a little later, it doesn't even seem like 
Tyrion is acting like a prisoner anymore. So Catelyn is doubting her own impulses and what led her here. So Sir Donald, uh, well, he's, yeah, he's certainly not even a tertiary character. He's like a quaternary <laughs> character, uh, even go lower with your numbers there. Uh, but he serves a purpose of, you know, just the way he talks in this opening scene, I think is very reflective of how Catelyn's story is going. He's got all these blustery assertions and he's standing on ceremony. He basically is the world of feudalism that Catelyn was betting the house on her last POV chapter <laughs> when she summoned the swords to get Tyrion. He's, he's got this line, The clans have grown bolder since Lord John died, Sir Donald said. He was a stocky youth of 20 years, earnest and homely, with a wide nose <laughs> and a shock of thick brown hair. So clearly not actually that experience. <laughs> if it were up to me, I would take a hundred men to the mountains, root them out of their fastnesses, and teach them some sharp lessons. But your sister has forbidden it. Just clearly very head in the clouds, like not connected to the kind of grim details that Catelyn has just been through in terms of what fighting in the mountains is really like. Yeah. The the way Sir Donald talks, it reminds me not only of medieval feudalism, but also of colonial officers. Like, he's a detached British officer in India or a Frenchman in Algeria talking about, oh, the locals, they always get into their dust tips. If I had the men, I would sort them out what what. Uh, It's that kind of arrogance. Yeah. My, My take was it was almost like a Vietnam war type parallel where you have the American sure. military saying, ah, if we only have the correct number of soldiers there, we can get into the jungle and root out the Viet Cong and the North Vietnamese and expel them. And that's, that's how we're going to do these things because we're Americans and we win every single war that we ever fought. And, you know, we are the victors in World War II and all of the wars ever since and before <laughs> that as well. And now we're in Vietnam sure. we're going to root out, root out these folks from the fastnesses of, of the jungle. So I think that's a great point you make about Sir Donald being very much, uh, very much inexperienced, but also very much an embodiment of feudalism, but also having some parallels to some things that, that, you know, George, as he's talked about, has been very much influenced by Vietnam. Yeah, that's a great comparison as well. I think you see that same kind of, that blithe assumption of superiority that Catelyn has just seen kind of torn to shreds. Like, you know, who who was the best fighter in all those battles with the clansmen? Was it Sir Roderick? I'm sure he did well, but the one they keep mentioning is Bronn, the yeah. peasant, who has this ugly sword, not not castle forged. But he's got this incredible skill, and he's the one who's kind of moving up in the world by attaching himself to Tyrion. So these easy assumptions that Cadlin made that Sir Donald is still making are, are being questioned a bit. And I think I think we're meant to see Sir Donald in kind of a jaundiced light because of that. That Cadlin's yeah. kind of like, oh yeah, you know what? You you might you might think that way, but I've been through the real deal and it's not that easy. Right. Or like when he says to the blackfish, may we enter the veil? Sir Donald asks. You gotta say it musically, descending notes. May we enter the veil? <laughs> Sir Donald asks. The Waynewoods were ever ones for ceremony. Like, that just seems so pretentious after what yes. Catelyn's been through on the road. This real hard scrabble, like, can we keep going another day? Who's gonna die? Who's gonna live? We can't even bury the people we leave behind. Remember that detail yeah. where Catelyn wanted to have those niceties? And now she's got those niceties, but Sir Donald can still have those niceties because what has he ever actually been through? So, I mean, it's, it's, it ties into how the Knights of the Vale are generally used to kind of represent this kind of hollowness, the chivalric image in Freefall. We saw that with Sir Waymar Royce at the very beginning of the story, you know, acting all proudful, but then being caught alone by the real deal. Uh, Sir Hugh, of course, we've seen earlier in this book, mm-hmm. embodied all the kind of the youthful, naive dreams of knighthood, and then those were immediately dashed. So generally speaking, the Knights of the Vale represent this kind of illusion in the, in the guise of the reality. So Sansa better be careful is all I'm saying, because I'm pretty sure this applies to Harry the Air as well. Yeah, and all the other Knights of the Vale that will likely go north. But I'm getting ahead of ourselves because we're going to be talking about that <laughs> at the end of this uh, this episode. But, you know, it's, it's great, though, is that this chapter, like I said before, is starts that melancholy journey that Catelyn 
is going to be taking in her character and story arc here. At the same time, Catelyn is feeling melancholy, though. It is kind of belied by what the veil is like and the image and the images that George like we said, really elucidates here in this chapter. He really gets into depth about how beautiful and glorious looking the veil is. So it's kind of an interesting contrast between Catelyn Starr's kind of dark melancholy and the kind of fertile valley, agricultural wonderland sort of place that, that that she's in that, that she's, uh, she's seeing here, but it's, yeah, it's, it's a great little landscape that George is painting here. Yeah. I do love that contrast as well. It's not the only time Martin does it. He does it when Catelyn arrives at uh, Renly's camp and talks about the nights of summer all around her being laughing and full of lust, but she knows how it ends. Or when she's at River Run in her last Clash of Kings chapter and everyone around here is cheering Rob's victories, but she's mourning for Bran and Rickon who she thinks are dead. Catelyn has this consistently like, you know, the, she's the sour-voiced Cassandra in these room full of drunk uh, Bacalalian, you know, idiots who are just living it up with with their days of, of wine and sex, but, you know, mm. can't see the danger coming. I think, of course, that only works if, if Martin really sells the beauty of the image, and, and he really does when it gets to the Vale of Aaron. This is, I think, some of Martin's best world-building and you know, as we, we we tend to think of Martin now as the you know, the American Tolkien, the great the fantasy guy, you know, <laughs> with the dragons. But you know, prior to writing a song of ice and fire, he writ, wrote in a number of genres and another number of mediums. He's not necessarily the fantasy world building guy. It, he he could have easily fallen on his face, is what I'm saying here. But he yeah. wrote something so gorgeous, I just have to read it. On the far side of the stoneworks, the mountains opened up suddenly upon a vista of green fields, blue sky, and snow capped mountains that took her breath away. The Vale of Erin, bathed in the morning light. It stretched before them to the misty east, a tranquil land of rich black soil, wide, slow-moving rivers, and hundreds of small lakes that shone like mirrors in the sun, protected on all sides by its sheltering peaks. <laughs> Wheat and corn and barley grew high in its fields, and as you said, even in Highgarden the pumpkins were no larger, nor the fruit any sweeter than here. I like that. That seems like like a little slogan almost for the farms of the Vale. Yeah. Like it's a point of pride. Even in Highgarden, they can't do better than we can. Mm-hmm. They stood at the western end of the valley where the high road crested the last pass and began its winding descent to the bottomlands two miles below. The vale was narrow here, no more than a half day's ride across, and the northern mountains seemed so close that Catelyn could almost reach out and touch them. Looming over them all was the jagged peak called the Giant's Lance, a mountain that even mountains looked up to, hmm. its head lost in icy mists three and a half miles above the valley floor. Over its massive western shoulder flowed the, go- the ghost torrent of Alyssa's tears. Even from this distance, Catelyn could make out the shining silver thread bright against the dark stone. And then, that's already great, but then this is my favorite part. When her uncle saw that she'd stopped, he moved his horse closer and pointed. It's there, beside Alyssa's tears. All you can see from here is a flash of white every now and then, if you look hard and the sun hits the walls just right. Hmm. Seven towers, Ned had told her. This is the part you said, but I gotta repeat it because I love it. Like white daggers thrust into the belly of the sky. So high you can stand on the parapets and look down on the clouds. That is just just detailed, baroque, overripe stuff. It feels like a watercolor or like a splash page on a comic book. Just yeah. like of an image that Martin clearly just had in his head and was oh, yeah. working hard to get down onto paper. This is not like a story beat he was going back and forth on a bit of nuanced characterization. No, this is a very specific, like a camera shot in his yeah. head. The, the mountains folding out to either side, and then the giant's lance like bisecting the veil right in the middle. The flash of white off the eerie. It's just, it's incredibly detailed, but also incredibly 
cohesive because the veil is kind of small enough that Catelyn can describe it all just from mm-hmm. this one vantage point. So you get a sense of all of it so it's not confusing. And ah, it's just, I'm really in awe of how much it captures there. And you just get the whole chessboard. You get the whole setting. Every, everything that can happen in the veil now, you understand where it's going to happen. And it's, 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 it's a w- wonderful piece of work. I really do love it. Yeah. And, you know, one of the cool things that Barton does here is he uses contrast. And I don't mean like contrast in terms of Catalan's contrast, character contrast, but I'm talking about light contrast here. You know, I love that part. Even from the distance, Catalan can make out the shining silver thread bright against the dark stone. So it really presents an image here. And one of the things I did before I, I came on this podcast is I went out for a little run and I was listening to this chapter again, Roger Trees narrating it. And you could just picture, I'm picturing my head because it's, it's dark out as we're recording this. And it was just an incredible image. And you could see the white towers kind of sticking out in the sunlight, hitting it at the right angle. And we're going to talk about a little bit here about what Catelyn sees when she's at the gates of the moon, and how she looks up and she sees like sparks of fire looking down at her and the veil high above white against the, you know, the dark mass of, of the mountain itself. So George does, like you said, he knocks it out of the park here in terms of talk in terms of describing this place and describing it in such a way that makes it that you can not just easily picture it but you can feel it and i think that's something that's again a testament to george's skill as a writer is that he makes you feel a setting as opposed to just makes you see it and he engages multiple senses here um for here, I mean, here, he just engages my sense of wonder more than anything else. Like, he really just kind of makes you feel the wonder and the majesty of this location. And it's great. I mean, it, it's fantastic. It is. And it, it gives a sense of overwhelming kind of warmth and reassurance and almost like you're in a cocoon. Like, you're in a place cut off from the rest of the world. I mean, the veil is not especially magical. It's actually yeah. one of the least magic associated of the Seven Kingdoms. But it reminds me of all the times in a fantasy story or in, you know, in old legends where you stumble upon a hidden veil in the mountains that no one knew was there, that's secretly full of lush fields and all the animals. Like, that's, that's a repeated trope. And the veil has that kind of sense of reassurance and comfort that is exactly what Catelyn is trying to access in this moment because the veil is where she's kind of <laughs> bet everything on, is, is, is working out here. And uh, you can also see that reflected in, in The Man of the Hour, uh, your, <laughs> your beloved namesake, Brendan Blackfish. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is just, again, presented as this figure of, of reassurance and strength and safety, even just coming down from the bloody gate with his pin and his cloak. It's, it's again, just very like like a painting uh, that you can just see in Martin's mind. And his relationship to Catelyn is just emphasized in warmth and uh, knowing each other so well and this sweetness. And her connection to childhood, which, as we've said before in Catelyn chapters, is, is a strong motif for remembering her sweet childhood. When a... Uh, she says that that hoarse, smoky voice took her back 20 years when she said, uh, your home is in my heart. And that even though his hair has, you know, obviously gone gray, he's got lines in his face. The smile was the same. And my favorite is when she has that little moment when she says, during all those years of Catelyn's girlhood, it had been Brynden the Blackfish to whom Lord Hoster's children had run with their tears <laughs> and their tails when father was too busy and mother too ill. Catelyn, Lysa, Edmure, and yes, even Peter Baelish, their father's ward, he listened to them all patiently as he listened now, laughing at their triumphs and sympathizing with their childish misfortunes. Just, you know, an all-around great guy, great dad, and even as he gives you the sense of his ferocity and strength as a warrior, the, the, the emotional note Martin is going for is how, how safe he makes you feel and how warm he makes you feel and connected. So he's a great guy. I can see why you model yourself after him, buddy. Yeah. 
And if you guys want to learn more about why I selected that namesake, check out our Patreon episode, which is one of the, the one that's out right now. We did answer our question where we are, our usernames come from. But yeah, you're, you're absolutely correct about who Brendan Tully is. I found it really interesting that the detail about Peter Baelish, that he had listened to even yeah. him. I thought that Isn't was that really interesting? Kind of, yeah. Because well, I, I wonder what that's about. Mm-hmm. You do wonder, like, is, is there going to be a potential for an interaction between the two of them in the future? I guess that's that's possible, I guess. Um, but, you know, there's I, I do wonder what that might what that might have been like. But I, I think that's cool, too, is you I don't know if it was a slip of tongue or whatnot, but you did call him like a good dad figure. The fact that he doesn't have yeah, any children, exactly. though, is, is <laughs> you know, it's, it's really cool, though, because he, he actually is like a, a, a much, much better father, father figure than than Hoster Tully is, uh, especially as we're going to be talking about with Lysa here momentarily. But I think it's um, the other thing, too, about Brendan Tully is that not only is he a good listener, but he's a good storyteller. Because one of the things that Jamie points out in Feast for Crows is that when he visited River Run back when at some point when he was a squire, you know, he loved listening to Brendan Tully tell the stories about when he was fighting in the War of the Nine Penny Kings. And he really looked up to this guy. So I, I love the fact that characters like Catelyn and Lysa and Peter Baelish and Edmure all look up to him almost as a father figure. But others look up to him, too, as a warrior. So he has multiple kind of facets of his personality and his character and his backstory and history that really appeal to Catelyn and also immediately make him appealing to us as readers. Perfectly said, sir. Yeah, this is a terrific character introduction. I think one of my favorites. I think Martin generally does a great job with character introductions, but this is one of my favorites for sure. Agreed. Uh, of course, though, that Brynden is not the only uh, Tully slash member of the Vale nobility <laughs> introduced in this chapter. A lot of this chapter is built up to the final introduction at the end of Lysa and Sweet Robin. And they, they are the storm clouds on the mountain, so to speak. They are the, the ones who, mentioning them, gets rid of any kind of reassurance or safety Catelyn might be feeling about the veil or the decisions that have led her here. Um, Lysa comes up right away in the opening conversation with Sir Donald Wainwood, as you said. Uh, he's key complaints. She would not even permit her knights to fight in the hand's tourney. She wants all our swords kept close to home to defend the veil. Against what? No one is certain. Shadows, some say. Hmm. So there's already rumors that Lysa's not just paranoid but maybe mentally unsound or is making up her enemies yeah uh and that of course takes on a deeper level when Catelyn talks to Brynden about it uh Catelyn protesting at first a woman can rule as wisely as a man Catelyn said the right woman can her uncle said with a sideways glance <laughs> make no mistake Cat. Lysa is not you he hesitated a moment if truth be told I fear you not may find. I fear you may not find your sister as helpful as you would like. <laughs> she was puzzled. Again, he's being so delicate about this because he doesn't really know how to explain it. Yeah, it reminds me almost of how Barristan was trying to explain Eris to Danny. Yeah, and kept having to like pause and go. They they told you nothing about him, really? Huh? <laughs> okay. Um. Geez. Same kind of uncertainty and ill at ease here. As Brendan puts it, the Lysa who came back from King's Landing is not the same girl who went south when her husband was named Hand. Those years were hard for her, you must know. Lord Aaron was a dutiful husband, but their marriage was made from politics, not passion. As was my own. Uh, they began the same, but your ending has been happier than her sister's. And doesn't that just sum up the Catelyn Lysa relationship yep. right there? Two babes stillborn, twice as many miscarriages, Lord Aaron's death. Catelyn, the gods gave Lysa only the one child, and he is all your sister lives for now, poor boy. Small wonder she fled rather than see him handed over to the Lannisters. Your sister is afraid, child. The Lannisters are what she fears most. She ran to the Vale, stealing away from the Red Keep like a thief in the night, and all to snatch her son out of the lion's mouth. And now you have brought the lion to her door. Hmm. So the impression there is that Lysa is 
barely keeping it together. That she's she's not just. I mean, the the impression we got from the letter she sent to Catelyn was that she was kind of being devious and spycraft, and you know, sending a crucial message to get her allies together. And right, you know, even Varys said Lysa was gathering swords around her. The impression up to this point has been that Lysa is active, an active participant. She's like Stannis. She's waiting. She's getting ready to jump into the game. But now Brendan is telling us no. She was trying to get out of the game. She's yeah. trying to hide everything and pretend that nothing outside the veil is happening. This is a huge change in our perception of events because Lysa's letter to Catelyn was such a big deal and has impacted the decisions Catelyn has made. So now Catelyn is having to look at this image of her sister and think, oh, that's my source. <laughs> that's, what, that's, that's whose goodwill I've been betting this on? Mm-hmm. Don't know about that. <laughs> that's, that's not great. No, you're right. Is that it's 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 not great for Catelyn, but I think it's really good on George's part and Brendan Tully's part. Is is that Lysa's struggles are portrayed sympathetically here? You know, Brendan Tully could have been like, "Ah, that woman's just fucking crazy. I don't know what's up with her." That's true. Just a uh, she's gone off her off her off her off her gourd. She's she's women get hysterical, right? Yeah, yeah, she's hysterical. That's a good point. But instead, it's framed that she has a reason for having this kind of psychotic break and or near psychotic break, as we're going to find out. You know, she lost several children to, to stillborn. She had four miscarriages. You know, these things are, are incredibly psychologically impactful on, on Lysa Tully. And beyond all of that, those things, and they're terrible in and of itself and would cause even the strongest person to, you know... In, engage in depression at the very least and, you know, have a potential psychological break. She's also being manipulated by Littlefinger through all of this. And you had brought up the point about how Lysa had seemed a competent actor in the Game of Thrones before we get her introduction here. I think the reason why she seems competent is because during all of those things, she's being kind of led around by the nose by Littlefinger here. So Littlefinger is the one who says, because I mean, what, what does Lysa say in Sansa's last storm chapter? But ah, that letter, that was a clever stroke, Lord Peter. You know, yes, yes. Making, it, point. Cl- making it clear that wasn't on Lysa's volition. That was all being orchestrated by Littlefinger here. So when, when she's in the Vale of Aaron, she's away from Littlefinger. She has probably something of a communication line going on with Littlefinger, but it's not to the sense, not to the point where she's interacting with him, perhaps not daily, but often enough that she had an idea of how to bring about this plan that Peter Baelish was orchestrating. That's a very good point, and that might even be intended as a clue to Martin, from Martin to the reader, saying, you know, maybe there's something else going on here because Lysa seemed real certain and real in control up until now, but now you meet her and she's clearly not, you know, in control of much. Yeah. So there's there's got to be another element at work. So that might be it might be a hint from Martin. And of course, uh, things get even more uh, shaky for both Catelyn and the Veil vale when the subject of Sweet Robin comes up. Hmm. Uh, as the Blackfish says, Lord Robert, he sighed, six years old, sickly, and prone to weep if you take his dolls away. Hmm. John Aaron's trueborn heir by all the gods. Yet there are some who say he's too weak to sit his father's seat. Nestor Royce has been high steward these past 14 years while Lord John served in King's Landing, and many whisper that he should rule until the boy comes of age. Others believe that Lysa must marry again, and soon. <laughs> so the, the overall impression here is one of disorder and uncertainty, that for all the Vale has this material lushness and this proud history, it's been thrown into disarray by a power vacuum, and the power vacuum exists because really no one can make Lysa do anything. Like, right. she's... she's She's got, you know, practical control of the Eyrie, and she's got practical control of Sweet Robin. And as we will see in A Feast for Crows, that matters a great deal, no matter yeah. how 
many uh, soldiers or resources the other lords of the Vale can muster, they're pretty much bound by doing whatever the Aaron or whoever has the Aaron says. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get the sense that it's all kind of teetering here and that the Vale has been exposed to how weak that system really is when the Aaron is a six-year-old child and his regent is either, in reality, uh, conspiring with someone or, as it seems, just not in her right mind. So something is rotten in the state of the Vale, as Catelyn gradually realizes as she takes this ride with her uncle uh, to the giant's lance. Yeah, and, you know, we're also seeing some symbol politics here, as you pointed out, is that sweet Robin, six years old, sick and prone to weep if you take his dolls away, he's the guy who's calling the shots here. There's not, it's not, Nestor Royce is not the one who's kind of running the veil now that Lysa, Lysa Aaron is, or Lysa Aaron is back in the veil itself. It's this kid, and this kid has all the power because he has the inherited right from John Aaron. The best man or woman in this case doesn't have the ability to rule the veil. It's it, it's a blood right for for Sweet Robin, and that is troubling. You know, we talk about implicit critiques of feudalism in, in previous podcasts, and I think this is another example where George is again calling us to question: like, is this necessarily the best system of government where you have? an entire region of Westeros, one of the seven kingdoms being run by a kid who's not, who's not doing well physically or mentally. And you have his mother who is ruling in his name, who is also not doing well physically, mentally, and emotionally. It's tough for, for the veil. And it's tough too, because no one really is sure how to interpret the actions that Lysa is making here. And, and Lysa, for all the sympathy and, and pity we give her because of a variety of reasons, whether it's, it's some of the, uh, traumas that she experienced, whether it's the manipulations of Littlefinger, she's just not quite at the capability and level that Catelyn is in being able to, you know, as we find out later in the Game of Thrones and on into Clash and Storm, serve as Rob Stark's closest companion and advisor and his attempt to secede from the Lannisters. Yeah, Lysa is not you, as the Blackfish says, and despite both of them being named for the king, uh, Robert Aaron is no Rob Stark. <laughs> so they they can't really function, and yeah, it's there's no 25th Amendment. There's no right. avenue for getting rid of these people uh, if, if they're not going to play along. It's, it's not dissimilar to what happens in King's Landing in between Robert's death and Tyrion showing up. Whereas this, yeah. it's, there's, this, there's no certainty. There's no clearness. There's no smooth lines of authority. And that's feudalism's whole bag. That's its selling point is smooth lines of authority, clear, consistent hierarchy. Is, is you know it's worth it to make your sacrifices to fit into those hierarchy because that's how you, you get things done that's how you protect each other apparently not not in the <laughs> veil not if this is how things are being run it's just chaos like Martin is already delving into the imagery that will dominate Feast for Crows when uh, the Blackfish says already the suitors gather like crows on a battlefield and that emphasizes that Catelyn who has been seeking this place of safety and surety and reassurance has just walked onto another battlefield she's right. just walked into another chaotic place that ultimately will not help her, will not save her, will not uh, offer succor to her and her family, and is going to let Tyrion walk free and eventually recruit the clansmen. And as the Blackfish says, in this context, Tyrion is suddenly feeling less and less like a prisoner because hmm. Catelyn's failsafe isn't working out. So you get that great line where her uncle glanced back to where Tyrion Lannister was making his slow descent behind them. I see an axe on his saddle, a dirk at his belt, and a sellsword that trails after him like a hungry shadow. Where are the chains, sweet one? So our, our perceptions of power are being a little questioned here. Yeah. And 
But as you say, though, it is important to keep in mind that Littlefinger is behind a lot of this, that this isn't genuine chaos. This is astroturf to a certain mm-hmm. extent. Mm-hmm. Like, this is, not, this is not actual disorder resulting from there being no authority. This is the authority hiding itself. Littlefinger is keeping the veil on ice, so to speak. That's what's huh. actually happening here. You're right. So that's worth keeping in mind for sure upon reread. Indeed. And that's going to be something that we're going to be experiencing throughout. You know, one of the, the fascinating things about this chapter is that you kind of get this sense of why is Lysa holding out on marriage? Why is she seeming to pretend at marriage? In, in kind of a similar vein as to what Doran Martell does with Ariane in that she he kind of yeah, plays at point. marrying her off in order to keep his true conspiracy uh, still in play. So here we know why Lysa is holding out on all of these suitors and is only playing at marriage because she has to maintain political power in the veil. And that does speak a little bit to her ability. I think that does get kind of overlooked at times is that she, fair, yeah. she is able to manipulate the veil in order to keep it under her control and not have a Lord's declarant situation crop up until after her death. But the reason why that she's holding out on all these folks is that she is planning on marrying Peter Baelish. I think I have to imagine that was part of the plan at this point, at this juncture in the story, that little finger had promised that his hand in marriage to Lysa, if she had complied with his, uh, with his scheme and with his conspiracy to bring down the Starks and to kind of integrate and chaos into the Westerosi political scene. So I, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think that's, that that was in the works at this point? Or you think that was something that came up in kind of the Storm of Swords, Clash of Kings time frame? I got to imagine it's part of the plan at some point, because otherwise, what are you keeping the veil on ice for? How are right. you planning to gain control of it unless you marry Lysa? But on the other hand, he needs a stepping stone, as he says later. So how he's planning to become Lord of Hall or the equivalent therein, enough that his match to Lysa would even be possible... That he might have been just counting on the shifting tides of war to eventually deliver him. Who knows if he had a specific plan for that? Yeah, uh, maybe maybe he hoped that like Stannis would get defeated and he'd get Dragonstone or like you know I'm sure he hoped somehow in this civil war there's got to be a castle that'll come free that I can get my hands on. Still, he's um, lucky as shit to get Harrenhal at the same time. He is lucky because he, he's promised it by Tyrion who who doesn't grant it to him and then he gets it later from Tywin. Right. So it is we'll have fun with that once we get to Littlefinger and a Clash of Kings. That's an oh, interesting yeah. game. So anyway, after all these conversations, Catelyn finally arrives uh, at the base of the Giant's Lance, uh, takes one more look up to establish it at the appropriately titled Castle Gates of the Moon at its base. And as you said, it's that great image. She raised her eyes up and up and up. First all she saw was stone and trees, the looming mass of the great mountain shrouded in night as black as a starless sky. Then she noticed the glow of distant fires well above them, a tower keep built on the steep side of a mountain, its lights like orange eyes staring down from above. Hmm. Above that was another higher and more distant, and still higher a third, no more than a flickering spark in the sky. And finally, up where the falcon soared, a flash of white in the moonlight. Vertigo washed over her as she stared upward at the pale towers so far above. Beautiful image. Again, very kind of album cover-y. Um, it reminds me, this time through, it stood out to me as potentially a 2001 A Space Odyssey reference. Huh. There is one of the more famous shots from that movie is, so of course, if you don't know, the opening act of 2001 is... A bunch of, like, Neanderthals, ape-men figures, some kind of, you know, evolutionary stage before us, are stumble upon this weird, bizarre monolith that just landed and start touching it and gaining sentience from it. And there's this one shot from one of their perspectives uh, at the very base of the monolith, looking all the way up at, up at the moon in the sky, silhouetted against it, just as a way of huh. kind of symbolizing... The growth in consciousness that this will lead will lead to mankind going out to the moon to conquering the stars, with, with, and th- that whole movie ends up being about. 
but it reminded me of that in this 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 specific shot of looking up a giant stone monolith to the something uh, the pale towers of the moon-like eerie in the sky it reminded me of that shot specifically who knows if that's intentional just thinking about the image of this shot when i was rereading it made me think huh that's, that's that feels familiar so it felt a lot like that to me I think you're right. Although I'm not as much of a Kubrick uh, fan as you are. I, I think that's uh, that's spot on. And yeah, I think it does speak a little bit to George's love of cinema and how he integrates that into A Song of Ice and Fire at various points. But that passage that you read, I think it might be my favorite description in all of A Song of Ice and Fire because it's yeah. so damn visceral, man. Like I just, you just can, I, I mean, I, li- I could literally picture it staring yes, up yes. at a mountain the dark mountain and the lights above and the trees and the finally the white stone towers all the way stabbing into the sky. It's like, wow, like this place is to use, to use the same term that I used earlier. It's majestic. It is Mm -hmm. awesome. It is, it it incurs awe in Catelyn. And you know, as much as I I, I love Game of Thrones season one, feel like they did a great show, a great job in adapting the first book to season one of Game of Thrones. They did use a lot of like matte paintings and things like that in order to show the veil, but it just didn't quite capture the intensity of the image that George is showing, showing us here. You know, they, the night climb is not featured in Game of Thrones season one, as far as I remember. And instead it's, it, it, they just kind of cut straight away to Catelyn arriving in the veil. Brendan Tully is not there. Instead, as far as Egan, who shows up, who again, you know, he shows up, he does show up at the end of this chapter. And, uh, and yeah, it kind of loses some of the majesty that we see George kind of engaging with his readers here in this, in this passage. I agree, especially with their budget they had. I think this is the kind of image to bring it back to our question from uh, last week's episode on Edward Eight that you, you you might need to go animated to fully capture what Martin's yes. experiencing going for here because it's it's really specific, really gorgeous, and really just elaborate and huge. But yeah, so then we get to uh, the climb itself, and uh, for me, you know, I've felt kind of nascently and felt it stronger upon reread this time hmm. that this climb is. Uh, kind of a metaphor for a lot of what Martin is doing with the series, the overall kind of project and positioning of nobility and the the heroic arc and the heroic odyssey that he's kind of examining. Uh, Building on those themes we were talking about earlier about kind of nobility and feudalism and the assumptions Sir Donald was making and what it means to be kind of under a feudal system under people like Lyson and Sweet Robin. I mean, if you think about it, you know, you, the project yeah. of nobility or the project of heroism is you climb high, you build as you go, you master your surroundings, but at every step you're leaving more and more of yourself behind. As you can see, these <laughs> castles all the way up. And then when you get to the top, you get to the eerie or you get to the, the end of your heroic quest, the, the wealth has returned, the splendor is there, but it's, it's austere, it's empty, it's cold, the way the eerie is described. <laughs> the, the, gods, the gods can't take root. I always thought it was a really telling detail that the soil is too weak for there to be a god's wood there. <laughs> the gods are not watching you anymore. The, your daggers are scratching at the sky. And just and then look what happens to Lysa. You're left there. Your defenses trap you. Your power has numbed you. And bit by bit, you just go crazy. I mean, the climb that happens in this chapter is a completely unnecessary danger. Right. Taken on so just just so Lysa can yell at Catelyn a little sooner than she would have been able to otherwise. Right. Uh, all about all about endangering her when really Lysa is the one who endangered Catelyn. Like it's all such folly, and it feels to me almost like. Like Quentin's story, a commentary on the quest itself. Catelyn climbed all this way just to get yelled at by someone who doesn't even have her best interests in mind. This is what happened to Lysa. This is what could happen to Catelyn. This is how pointless, really what I'm saying is this is how pointless Littlefinger's climb is. 
That's what I think this kind of represents. That you, you, you work all this way, you get all to, and what's, what's waiting for you at the top? What? Nothing. Right. Just Lysa and Sweet Robin and their empty castle. There, there's, there's no real, you know, it's, it's the John Connington line. I tried to grasp a star, overreached and fell. That's hmm. the kind of sense I get from this climb. Is it's, it's a metaphor for that process of working so hard to get to the top. And then as Robert said, finding out the crown is an empty, empty victory and you don't even want it anymore. No, that's brilliant, man. I think that's a great I'll catch just. on your part. I think that George definitely intended it that way. And you can find, you know, an analog and parallel to, to Robert and what he's yeah. he's seeing is that he never felt so alive and winning the throne so dead and sitting it. You know, this it feels great ascending the ascending the mountain or ascending kind of the uh the the journey that Catelyn's undertaking here, but at the top there's there's nothing really. There's it's empty. There's no joy in when Catelyn reaches the top of the Eyrie. There's, there's no joy in Robert sitting the Iron Throne. It's just meaningless for him by the end. You almost feel nihilistic when you read this chapter and see what's up at the top and realize that, you know, we're, we are going to talk about this a little bit more, a little bit farther, uh, a little bit and a little bit. But it's really meaningless how all of these people died for Catelyn to get up to the top of the mountain to get yelled at. I mean, that's it's it's really <laughs> exactly it's so it's frustrating, but it's it's really you can really get the sense of why that melancholy is setting in for Catelyn, that she saw so many of these guys die and had was trying so hard to do what she thought was right. And the result was a sister who's not doing well mentally, a nephew who is similarly not doing well mentally and physically. And they're all angry at her. and They all think that she's in a position to to them and when she's. She's she's trying her best to do not be in a position to bring justice for for the death of John Aaron for the potential uh, for the attempted murder of Brand, of her son Bran Stark, but yeah no I think like ultimately as much as I love Catelyn she did you know attempt to grasp a star she overreached and ultimately she falls of course not in this chapter that comes much much later on but but yeah it's uh it's cool though yeah. but at this at, at, I'm sorry go ahead. Well, I was going to say, just you could draw a line from the end of Catelyn's last chapter, which is her saying, ah, oh, feudalism is working. I've got all my people together, all my father's bannermen. <laughs> and now at the end of this chapter, how well is feudalism working when you just had to climb this mountain to the top, the literal, you know, top of the pyramid, and this is what's waiting for you there? It's kind of, it's, it's a disillusionment for what she believes in. And I think it, I think it's worth noting that she, who guides her up this mountain but a bastard the king left behind. <laughs> the ever noble King Robert Baratheon, but he's, he's left this child behind, you know, and... Well, you know, it was nicer to her than he was to his other bastards, more attentive, more personally attentive, but still left her here, and she yeah. still doesn't really have any memory of him or knowledge of him. So that kind of gets at the same theme. But, yeah, I love Maya Stone's introduction, as you said. Hmm. Kinda, you kind of fall for her immediately. She's just a, she's so enthusiastic and so skilled at what she does. Uh, Catelyn, of course, does not like her at first, because, <laughs> uh, again, those themes. So she's, she's thinking of her as a bastard like Jon Snow, and that gets under her skin. Uh, and Catelyn, you know, she, she roots, it's, I think it's a telling detail that she roots her bravery in her noble blood. <laughs> she says, I was born a Tully and wed to a Stark. I do not frighten easily. And then I love that she immediately says, do you plan to light a torch? <laughs> I don't scare easily. I'll take on the darkness. Are we bringing a light? What do you mean we're not bringing a light? Of course we're bringing a light. Like it's immediately revealing that, no, she's quite afraid. Uh, which is nice, a nice little touch. But yeah, so she says that I'm not, can't be scared because I'm a Tully and went to a Stark. And she, as you say, she she thinks to herself about how Maya is kind of naive about how nobility works, about how the game is played with her love, the the Redford son. 
but despite that, Maya is the one who is kind of grounded in nature, in reality. Yeah. She compares herself to a goat and an owl. So she is able to navigate these particular heights, even though Catalan is the one more able to navigate the, the metaphorical heights, as it were. Of, of of being a noble and being a, a Tully and a Stark, so I think their 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 contrast and their little relationship doesn't last long, but I like it. I think it it gets at these themes pretty well. I like it too. Although I when I reread this chapter, I wasn't sure if Maya was necessarily as naive as Catelyn thinks that she is, because Maya Stone is a bastard of Robert's, so she is a royal bastard which does kind of elevate her station beyond simply being a, a noble bastard of some other house. She's the noble bastard of Robert Baratheon. So I don't know necessarily if Michael Red, if the match with Michael Redford was just completely out of the question because you could see a potential, I don't know. I mean, there's, there's a certain pride that kind of comes up throughout the series about marrying into the King's family and having grandchildren from one line that are the, Descend from a from a kingly line. That's something that sure, uh, sure. that Mace Terrell brings up, or rather, not Mace Terrell, but um, Olena Olena Terrell brings up about having this I, whole idea of having a grandson of his sitting the Iron Throne, sort of thing. And and I know that a child of Maya Stone would not necessarily sit the Iron Throne. I think that's not necessarily within the cards in a feudal structure. But there is a, a sense of pride that would come from having your children descending from a king's bastard as well as your own line, I guess, that you can see in some of these other noble houses in Westeros. Oh, yeah, I think if Maya was at court, acknowledged, living with Robert, part of court politics, I don't think there would be quite the same reluctance yeah. to get noble blood married into her because some people would see it, especially maybe houses that were kind of poor, like, you yeah. know, noble houses, like the, like the Westerlings, you know. Need, sure. Had had a strong name, but needed some money. Could could be persuaded to, uh, you know, betroth their one of their sons to Maya Stone to get in with the king. I could see that happening for sure. But uh, for I think you can see in Catelyn's climbs an overall arc that deals with these kind of themes with, yep. uh, you know, having this kind of appearance of nobility and wealth and strength kind of falling away once you're confronting the harsh realities of what's quote unquote climbing the ladder. Uh, is really like because at first nature is very kind when Catelyn's moving up the first stage of the journey the ascent was easier than Catelyn had dared hope the trees pressed close leaning over the path to make a rustling green roof that shut out even the moon (laughs) so it seemed as they were moving up a long black tunnel but the mules were sure-footed and tireless and Maya Stone did indeed seem blessed with night eyes and later she's just kind of falling asleep in the saddle so it's very comforting still at first uh, and they get to the first the first castle, which is, of course, named Stone. Solid, reliable stone. You can put your feet on stone. Hmm. Just like Maya Stone. It's, you know, uh-huh. it's dependable. It's certainty. And there you have the courtesies persist. The quote is, Inside, the portly knight who commanded the way castle greeted Maya by name and offered them skewers of charred meat and onions still hot from the spit. So, civilization still. Still people calling each other by name, offering you food. Mm-hmm. But it's an interesting little note that the habits and courtesies Catelyn cares so much are starting to die. Like, there's, the quote is... Uh, Catelyn had not realized how hungry she was. She ate standing in the yard as stable hands moved their saddles to fresh mules. The hot juices ran down her chin and dripped onto her cloak, but she was too famished to care. <laughs> so, you know, a little bit of the courtesies and, you know, chivalric image of the proper lady who eats in a proper way in her South, South Run fashion. She's starting to give those up a bit as, she, as you move up the mountain. And, of course, as you climb the ladder, your surroundings become more perilous and unforgiving. Catelyn says the second part of the ascent seemed more treacherous. The trail was steeper and the steps more worn, here and there littered with pebbles and broken stone. And uh, Maya says, Maya says you, don't want a, you don't want your mule to break a leg up here, she said. And Catelyn was forced to agree, which I like. Catelyn doesn't <laughs> like Maya, so she has to say she was forced to agree. 
And now you have farther to fall. Again, coming back to the metaphor of it, you have room to fall down from your lofty position on the ladder down onto the lesser lords below. She says, from time to time, the steps doubled back on themselves, and she could see stone below them and the gates of the moon farther down. It's torches no brighter than candles. Like, so that's, that's her looking down on the lesser lords. You are higher up in them. You are a Tully. You are a Stark. And, you know, here's, here are people on the next step of the ladder below you. But if you fall, they'll be coming right up, right up to claim you. And she goes from there to snow, which is, of course, treacherous stuff that you can't stand on properly if you're <laughs> Catelyn and you think that way about John. You can't stand yeah. on snow like you can on stone. And it's again, it's smaller. It's a single tower. It's just one keep behind a wall. It's you know you're getting farther and farther away from your from your niceties, from everything you can rely on. And that's where the comforts are refused. They offer them food, but Maya says no. So you're starting to, again lose that lose that connection to the world. Catelyn's coming from down below. And then at that point, she really breaks. You get that whole suspenseful scene we were talking a bit about, where uh, she's looking at this like this tiny like precipice that she has to cross and I don't like heights so I'm definitely just kind of <laughs> my shoulders are up when I read that kind of scene and uh, Maya's conquering it perfectly to, in order for Catelyn to get across and this is really what kind of makes the metaphor for me is that she has to swallow her noble pride the, the line is Catelyn Tully Stark swallowed what remained of her pride I cannot do this child she called out and I love it he says Martin writes it Catelyn Tully Stark Emphasizing both of her noble names yeah. there. The, no, the noble names that she said earlier inspired her bravery. But now she has to admit, nope, not quite enough. I have to trust this bastard and her mule. The people I didn't think of as, as high enough to, you know, that people I associated with Jon Snow. They're the ones I have to trust. And so foot by foot, step by step, the bastard girl led Catelyn across, blind and trembling. <laughs> while the white mule followed placidly behind them. Um... <laughs> Yeah, it's just she started out so sure of herself and now has kind of just had to trust. And that's a great, I, I think it's a great little arc. And at the end, as a, as a final kind of like humorous touch, I like that she, when she gets to the last stage, she just goes, ah, fuck it. No, no, absolutely not. I'm not literally climbing up there. Put me in a basket with the turnips. I'm just, oh, yeah. It's a nice, it's a nice little touch. It's realistic in that it doesn't turn Catelyn into an action hero. Right. Um, and uh, but I like it also as a nice little last comment that what what does it mean to be a noble? It means at the end of your climb, you get to be done. You don't have to climb yourself anymore if you don't want to. You can make somebody else do it for you. That's what the ultimate last stage of the climb is. Sure. Is that you don't have to climb anymore. So for me, that's that's Catalan's big arc up the giant's lance is is her seeing the the gradual kind of collapse of the niceties of nobility she loves so much. They're kind of, they're all just being seeped away as she goes. You know that's amazing and i think that's terrific on on your part to to take that interpretive route because i think that i would not have come across that way uh my my interpretation is much less uh uh noble and uh and poetic as yours and that is that we still see a uh a transition in terms of the mounts that catlin is taking up to the ear sure, okay we start yeah. with horses where brendan mm-hmm. tully and catlin start through the veil of aaron on on horseback we get to the gates of the moon and we switch to a mule, not necessarily the most noble of animal, but, uh, you know, can get, gets the job done, gets sure. Catelyn, you know, up through uh, two of the two of the way castles. And then she has to lead the mule out by foot. So she goes from horse to mule to foot. And then when she's finally at that saddle up there trying to attempt to cross one last time, she's led by the hand by Maya Stone. And she says, look, I'm done, man. I, I can't. Horses are gone. The mule's gone. I can't even walk this thing. I mean, like you have to mention, like the thing too that that should stand up to us as, as readers is that this is in 
the fucking dark and there's the yeah, winds are no shrieking kidding. around her and she can't see shit up on this mountain. And it's great that Maya Stone's up there and then can lead the way. But I would be terrified, too. I don't like heights either. And, you know, I'm a big, strong man and I would be scared at this juncture <laughs> here trying to, like, get up this mountain. So finally, she gets led up by a basket. So that's the final mount that she rides is up a basket yeah. of turnips and potatoes and apples. So it's cool that, you know, you have you have the that, that Martin is kind of doing multiple things here and utilizing the mounts to talk about Catelyn's journey, but also utilizing, you know, the, the way that how the climb feels to Catelyn, how it's what it's doing to her psyche and how that definitely symbolizes the role and that the fantasy protagonist takes and the and not quite the hero's journey, but it, uh, that's more of Quentin's storyline, but much more of what it means to to rise to the top and all the different struggles that you get to get up there and how you're finally hoisted up by those who are lessers according to the social structure of Westeros and, and brought to the very top. But no, it's, yeah, it's, it's, that, it's so good. That's a great arc you're saying about the mounts, but I hadn't put that together. The comparing specifically the horse at the beginning to the basket at the end, that is just a great arc <laughs> that she goes through. There's the one little comment that I think it's a dwarf says to Brienne on the road that his feet are little mules that will get him to wherever he needs to go. So it's kind of like that, like that she's just all these little different processes. And yeah, it's interesting that because on the one level, you could think about riding a basket the way I was putting it as kind of a privilege that she gets other people just to hoist her up. On the other hand, the way there's the way you were talking about it, where it's kind of like just the worst, lamest, most embarrassing of mounts. <laughs> right. You're just riding a basket of turnips. So right. that's great. I think you can think about it in either direction, which is that's funny to me. No, that's uh, good. It's completely good the opposite ways. Yeah, Martin can, can use, utilize that ambiguity so it can mean two things at the same time or, or have one interpretation, but or have one kind of canon interpretation, but, you know, multiple or one canon meaning, but multiple interpretations from from different folks. So I think it's good. Again, it's. As we often say in the in the podcast, it's definitely a testament to Martin's skill as a writer is that he provides ambiguity in something as simple as the way that Catelyn Stark is getting up to the Eyrie to tell a, a grander and better story. Well put, sir. But then, yes, she finally arrives atop the giant's lance to the Eyrie, the great noble seat of House Aaron, one of the most beautiful castles in Westeros. And it just gets worse. The, problem, <laughs> the problems up here are so bad. The rot has set in at the head and it's just moving on down. Uh, even... Even just the feeling of the place. Like, Winterfell felt hostile to Catelyn, but this is clearly worse. This feels empty. Like, lifeless. Yeah. At least Winterfell had a life. It just didn't particularly care for Catelyn. Right. Like, there's there's nothing up here. Like, she says, you know, it had no need of stables, nor smithies, nor kennels, but Ned said its granary was as large as Winterfell's, and its towers could house 500 men. Yet it seemed strangely deserted to Catelyn as she passed through it, its pale stone halls echoing and empty. Hmm. Uh, and Sansa will describe it much the same way that this this is really a place to walk around while you lose your mind. That's what the right. eerie is. Like all these like white walls. It feels almost like a mental hospital the way it's described. Like these just pale white hallways and no one's talking to you, and it's like off isolated by itself. Like this is Lysa's mental ward as well as a place of grandeur yeah. and wealth. And then of course then you meet Lysa herself, and it's it, as the. Martin sums it up in a paragraph. It had been five years in truth, five cruel years for Lysa. They had taken their toll. Her sister was two years the younger, yet she looked older now. Shorter than Catelyn, Lysa had grown thick of body, pale and puffy of face. She had the blue eyes of the Tullys, but hers were pale and watery, never still. Her small mouth had turned petulant. As Catelyn held her, she remembered the slender, high-breasted girl who'd waited beside her that day at the Sept at River Run. How lovely and full of hope hmm. she had been. 
All that remained of her sister's beauty was the great fall of thick auburn hair that cascaded to her waist. Now, Martin is kind of relying on a kind of hackneyed trope where, like, someone getting less pretty means they've fallen from grace, which is, that's kind of lazy. Like, mm-hmm. that's obviously not the case. Like, it, it's not, that's not the case for Brendan, right? He's still, he is aged. Right. But Martin made the point that that didn't mean he's fall from grace. So why does this? So I think it's a little lazy, but I think it effectively gets the message across that everyone warning Catelyn about Lysa was right, <laughs> that she indeed has, has has lost something. She's gotten yeah. brittle in some way, and she's she's specifically that Catelyn says she's she used to be lovely and full of hope, and you get the sense that's no longer mm-hmm. the case for Lysa. Lysa's given up hope, and that, that ties directly into the themes of the series and to some of the stuff we've been talking about, that process of disillusionment and having dreams and having them shattered. That applies to Littlefinger, of course, in the worst way possible. And yeah. I think you can see Catelyn saying it's, it's, had its, it's had its way with Lysa, too. The climb has taken its toll on Lysa, in short, in more ways than we can even possibly know in our first read-through. Agreed. And we also get some more context, too, about what Lysa was like on her marriage day to John Aaron in A Storm of Swords, where Catelyn says that the tears had flowed the day that Lysa had married John Aaron at the Sept of River Run. That's an image that kind of feels maybe a little bit retconny in in terms of what we get from Catelyn here about how, how she had been slender and high-breasted, who had been lovely yeah, and full point. of hope. So you do kind mm-hmm. of wonder what whether Martin went back and be like, I don't know that that necessarily works in the context of who Lysa is and the conspiracy that Littlefinger is kind of working in Lysa because, of course, that helps set us up for, you know, of course, Catelyn's own tears at the Red Wedding and, of True. course, uh, Lysa's tears, 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 and the tears of Lysa that we see at the end of Storm of Swords. So it's interesting that Martin goes back and kind of does a little bit of retcon work in Storm of Swords to kind of give us a image of, of Lysa Tully that's a little bit more nuanced and true to the character that we know her in Storm of Swords. But, you know, Lysa's beauty is faded and she's not she's not of a sound mind and i think we definitely see that when lysa's mood is kind of goes ping-ponging back and forth between ecstatic to upset to angry just kind of in a blink of an eye yeah it's not just that she's paranoid it's that her mood keeps changing right it's not it's not even consistently paranoid it's shifting on a on a dime and everyone around her is kind of bewildered and constantly trying to keep up and uh, Martin writes this really kind of intensely in this first scene with Catelyn. He he compares Lysa's mood shifts to extremes of temperature in a way that makes me feel like it. Lysa's almost standing in for the eerie, like this this kind of cold, isolated standpoint and what it's kind of done to her. Uh, she it says, you know, she held Catelyn's hand as they withdrew and dropped it the instant the door closed. Hmm. Catelyn saw her face change. It was as if the sun had gone behind the cloud, which again, that kind of natural imagery that's fairly intense imagery. Have you taken leave of your senses? Lysa snapped at her. To bring him here, without a word of permission, without so much as a warning, to drag us into your quarrels with the Lannisters. My quarrels? <laughs> Catelyn could, again, I love instantly sibling fight. My quarrels? Catelyn's could scarce believe what she was hearing. And I really, I love Michelle Fairley in this in the show. She really sold her utter yeah. exasperation with her sister in these scenes. Like, I love you, but you're fucking everything up. I love <laughs> yeah. you. But this is bad. Uh, and again, the ele- like the elemental comparison. A great fire burned in the hearth, but there was no trace of warmth in Lysa's voice. That, that's, again, the eerie. <laughs> it has the wealth, it has the trappings, but there's no actual warmth there. Yeah. And Lysa, Lysa has now kind of embodied it. Moreover, she's, 
as that quote says, she's shirking all responsibility for what her, her letter instigated, which yeah. really throws everything that's come since then into sharp relief that the, the, the plot mover, arguably, of a Game of Thrones is now saying, no, no, I didn't do that. That wasn't me. What? <laughs> what are you looking at me for? As Catelyn says, they were your quarrels first, sister. It was you who sent me that cursed letter. You who wrote that the Lannisters had murdered your husband. To warn you so you could stay away from them. I never meant to fight them. First of all, of course, we know she's bullshitting because right. Littlefinger had her write that letter for a reason. But also, it's like there was no indication that Lysa said in her letter, I'm telling you this to warn you to stay away from them. Like, that's, that's not what she wrote. Catelyn took the reasonable conclusion that Lysa was asking her to get involved. Yeah. So Lysa's just completely bullshitting uh, after the fact now, trying to shut down Catelyn because she didn't expect Catelyn to get this far or go this far this quickly. You're right. But it's interesting is that what's, what I think is kind of unique is that Lysa is not altogether wrong here, at least to, to begin with. When she says, have you taken leave of your senses to bring him, that is Tyrion, here without a word of permission, without so much as a warning? That's reasonable, I think, for Lysa that to be like, That is true. Look, you, I might be fucking up, but you're fucking up too, Catelyn. Like, you have... <laughs> Again, the classic sibling thing, yeah. Right, exactly. I'm doing bad, but what about you? Yeah, you're bad too. You're just as bad, exactly. if not worse. Uh, that's, exactly. that's reasonable, I think, because Lysa has kind of shut herself away from the worries of the realm and has attempted to isolate herself from the Lasters, ostensibly isolate herself from the Lasters when we actually know that she's isolating herself in the armies of the Vale in order for Littlefinger to sweep them up into his own power at a, at a time to be determined. Now... The place where she becomes unreasonable is where she says to drag us into your quarrels with the Lannisters. And you're like, wait a minute. Like, come on. Like, that's utterly unreasonable. So when we talk about that switch in Lysa, yeah, like her mood is point. switching, we also, we're seeing that in both in her facial expression, but we're also seeing that in conversation where she's reasonable at one point and then she becomes utterly unreasonable at a, like kind of a snap of a finger. That's a very good point. It comes up again when Catelyn notes, huh, she named Cersei in the letter, but now she seems real sure it's Tyrion who right. killed Jon Arryn. Maybe, she, and Catelyn unfortunately doesn't put it together, maybe she's just saying whatever she comes to mind at a given moment because she's not actually running this scheme. Right. Um, but yeah, you can already see that popping up just in, like you said, her switching between what she's even arguing about and how, how much of a point she has. Mm -hmm. And then, as if this couldn't possibly get more disappointing and absurdist for <laughs> Catelyn, the ostensible master of the veil totters into the room. Oh, God. Robert Aaron, Lord of the Eyrie, stood in the doorway, clutching a ragged cloth doll and looking at them with large eyes. He was a painfully thin child, small for his age and sickly all his days, and from time to time he trembled. And look, I know you're not supposed to wish ill on children, but... <laughs> As you said in wonderfully in your synopsis, not all kids are cute. No. And sweet Robin, I'm getting I'm supposed to feel sorry for him. He is a child who's being poisoned and he has a disease. <laughs> and you know, it's not his fault he was born into this situation and Lysa has not helped at all, but he's also just so irritating yes. in every way to everyone he interacts with. He's already irritating even before you get to Hi mommy Sansa, let me bury my face in your titties, mm -hmm. which is where he gets to in a feast for crows, which is just the worst. So, you know, I, I overall feel bad for Sweet Robin, but we are supposed to, I think, just the way he's written, want to just kind of strangle the kid. Yeah. And I think that it's not just that he's young and sick. It's that Lysa's infantilizing him to just an absurd, even gross degree. Like, as you were saying, it's so frustrating in the conversation when Catelyn's just trying to say, hey, you know there's a war about to happen, right, right. buddy? Like, this is a... Th 
As she says, if you're right about the Lannisters, all the more reason we must act quickly. We, not in front of the baby, Lysa said. <laughs> he is a delicate temper, don't you, sweet one? Like he's going to go, yes. The boy is lord of the eerie and defender of the veil, Catelyn reminded her. And these are not times for, for delicacy. <laughs> Ned thinks it may come to war. Quiet, Lysa snapped at her. You're scaring the boy. Even though, of course, she, he's not listening. Right. Like this is clearly just Lysa projecting onto her child. And then, yeah... The, uh, don't be afraid, my sweet baby, Lysa whispered. Mother's here. Nothing will hurt you. She opened her robe and drew out a pale, heavy breast tipped with red. The boy grabbed for it eagerly, buried his face against her chest, and began to suck. Lysa stroked his hair. Look, I get what Martin's going for there. The absurdity that this is who's in charge. Uh, but it is, it is a little... When you look at all, all Martin's other frequently unnecessary breast slash breast milk imagery, mm-hmm. this, this starts to become less, yes, I see your point, and more just what... What are you doing, dude? Why? Why? Why you got to do this? Why? 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 And you know, this is um, the actress who plays the actor. The actor who plays Lysa Lysa Aaron in Game of Thrones is a great act, actor by the name of Katie Katie Dickey, and she does a great job of uh, of selling the scene. And they even show like her like breastfeeding her her child. Of course, it's a it's a prosthetic. Uh, prosthetic boob. It's not an actual boob. If you watch some of the um, the background material for Game of Thrones season one, but the kid who plays Sweet Robin, and I'm blanking on his name right now, the actor itself, he does a really good job too, and he sells it really well because he kind of has this blank expression and he's not really sure what yeah. he's seeing. And there's actually Agreed. a really cool reason why that's the case, and that the actor himself was you know six or seven years old, but was uh, extraordinarily nearsighted. So he couldn't actually perceive like things that were going on around him. So he has this kind of blank, like wide eyed expression, the same way that we see sweet Rob in this chapter. I mean, he's introduced as what standing at the doorway, wide eyed with, you know, looking at them with his cloth doll. It really kind of brings us, I think it was a great, I I did kind of criticize the adaptation of the veil of Aaron in, in game of Thrones season one, a little bit before, but here I think the game of Thrones season one just kind of nailed it both in its casting choices, as well as kind of uh, giving us this, uh, this bit about these two, these two characters and, uh, and really adapting them really well for the small screen. Yeah, nicely said. I didn't know that detail about him being nearsighted, but that fits the casting all the more perfectly. Because, yeah, I could always absolutely believe that kid was Sweet Robin yeah, uh, for a variety of reasons, but the facial acting was a large portion of it. So, like I said, Lysa's infantilizing the kid, and she's also reinforcing his worst instincts. Is he a bad man? The Lord of the Eerie asked, his mother's breast popping from his mouth, the nipple wet and red. A very bad man, Lysa told him as she covered herself, but mother won't let him harm my little baby. Make him fly, Robert said eagerly. Lysa stroked her son's hair. Perhaps we will, she murmured. Perhaps that is just what we will do. So this is, it, this is like, again, it's like Cersei and Joffrey if they were shut-ins. <laughs> if, if they just, like, were afraid to leave their rooms. But were still just, just as crazy and paranoid. Mm-hmm. And it's, this is the ultimate joke on Catelyn, as we've been building up to. That this is, this is, what she, this is who she's risked it all for. This is who she was counting on to help her out and protect her. Is these two. But it's also a joke about the noble class. This is who's literally on top of the mountain. All those other noble knights with their great houses and history and wide, verdant lands. This is who they have to take orders from. Yeah. Like, what kind of a system is that? How, how obviously ludicrous on the face of it is that? And that's an important thing for Catelyn to confront. Because as we've said before, Catelyn is, maybe more than anyone else, the voice of the noble class that believes it's rational, that believes its system makes sense, that Catelyn doesn't think of herself as just like, you know, looting for all that it's worth. 
she she sincerely believes that the overlapping protections of feudalism produce good outcomes, but she's being confronted head on in the form of licensed sweet robin by how this is not actually the case. Right. Simply not even by their policies, but just by how they conduct themselves and how they are how they react when they are called upon to act. It's it's a it's a blow to Catalan's not just her plan, but I think her overall worldview, I would say. Yeah. You can see why her heart is turning to stone at the start of this chapter. You can see it getting more stony by the end of this chapter. I mean, there's so many people have died to get Catelyn up here, and this is the end result of her journey, is is her psychologically damaged sister and her likewise psychologically damaged nephew. That's that's the end game right now. And that's yeah. got to be just shattering for Catelyn. You know, we don't get the, the chance for her to dwell on it at this juncture. And we do get a Tyrion chapter that does is kind of nestled in between this Catelyn chapter and the next Catelyn chapter. So, but I think it would be interesting um, to explore. And we do kind of see it in, again, season one of Game of Thrones to see Catelyn's outlook just kind of slowly but surely just kind of get more and more depressed as she realizes that what she's gotten herself into and how many people died to get her into this terrible situation. Yes, indeed. There's the great paragraph from it. And like you say, Martin doesn't linger on it, but he does express it somewhat here. Catelyn was at a loss for words. John Aaron's son, she thought incredulously. She remembered her own baby, three-year-old Rickon, half the age of this boy and five times as fierce. Hmm. Small wonder the lords of the Vale were restive. For the first time, she understood why the king had tried to take the child away from his mother to foster with the Lannisters. Hmm. So you can see that in her thoughts, that the way Lys and Sweet Robin behave is casting doubt not only on her whole plan, but the whole political situation of the Vale is shaken up because of how the people at the top are acting. And they're not even acting... They're not even acting imperious. They're not even acting bad in an intimidating, frightening way. They're acting pathetic. In a way that just like, uh, why these poor, sad, wretched, frightening people are in charge, someone get a blanket over them. Someone take them away <laughs> to a nice room and get them some milk or something. Right, like, yeah. it's, it's, it's that kind of pathetic, which is in some ways even more scary than a tyrant, if that makes sense. Because it's like, wow, there's just no order or logic to this no. at all. Um, at the same time, as much as we're kind of dunking on Lysa here, <laughs> and for good reason, she's very frustrating in this chapter. Yes. Her, ba- her backstory is very significant when it comes to talking about how paranoid she is how much uh, she is kind of jumping among her moods, and why she doesn't really trust her own family. Because, of course, we learn in later books that uh, when she conceived the child with Peter Baelish, that Hoster forced an abortion on her and sent Peter away, <laughs> and forced her to marry John Aaron right afterwards. And it's, it's implied, though not stated outright, that complications, physical complications for Lysa resulting from uh, that kind of forced abortion yeah. have contributed to her difficulty conceiving ever since. So Hoster really ruined her life in a lot of ways here. And I think that does need to be taken into account, not removing her responsibility for the decisions she does make, which are incredibly cold-blooded, especially towards Catelyn. But in terms of going understanding the mental state that leads to those decisions, I think think when you read this passage especially, coming back, knowing what Hoster did to Lysa, it's really kind of heartbreaking. Lysa seated herself near the fire and said, Come to mother, my sweet one. She straightened his bedclothes and fussed with his fine brown hair. Isn't he beautiful? And strong, too. Don't you believe the things you hear? John knew. The seed is strong, he told me. His last words. He kept saying Robert's name, and he grabbed my arm so hard he left marks. (laughs) Tell them the seed is strong. His seed. He wanted everyone to know what a good, strong boy my baby was going to be. So, I mean, there's some crazy disassociation going on where she's proudly quoting the husband she murdered. Like, talking about how great their son is going to be. When it's like... But she's she's had to make that disassociation because... 
as Brendan said, Sweet Robin is all she all she has, and she's clinging to him with such ferocity because she lost that initial hoped for child because yeah. Hoster took that away from her. And that so that's really kind of sad and wretched, and makes you, if not like Lysa, at least understand and pity her more than you might otherwise. And I think again, there's a class critique that this is this is how noble noble men, glorious good men like Hoster Tully, handle their daughters when their right. daughters get out of line, and this is what happens to them at the end result of that process. It's so and that is just yeah. that is just con- this damnation that is condemning. Yeah, it's so sad. I mean, L- Lysa, as much as we're both frustrated with her at the end of this chapter. And frustrated with her every single time she shows up on page, you really, in in on a reread like this, you really start to feel a lot of pity for her as a character. She, she's had a shitty father. Her mother seemingly was sick for most of her life, and so wasn't really around. And she's dealing with men who are manipulating her and viewing her as a, a mere prize to win in order to bring armies to the fold as her father did with John Aaron. That was Hoster Tully had threatened to leave the rebellion unless she, he married his daughter to, to John Aaron in order to secure, you know, the Tully name in the veil. It's, it's extraordinarily sad. And, and Lysa is such a pitiable character. I mean, very much disturbed as a character, very much disturbed by so much of the, the shit that she's gone through though. And I think that's such a significant and important distinction to make is that while we're just annoyed as fuck by like all the stuff that she does here, like when she like pops her boob out for, for, for sweet Robin and, you know, is accusing Catelyn of, of wrongdoing that she herself created. You want to be like, no, that's, that's wrong. And you're really angry with her, but at the same time you have to pity her and pity her just because of all the shit she's been through. Like, I think that's what, what George does well in writing a song of ice and fire is that he, shows shitty, awful, evil characters, but he does it in such a way that you understand them and understand why they are the way that they are without condoning their actions, without being like, yeah, well, Lysa really had a point in this chapter. Well, no, she doesn't have a point in this chapter. Yeah, that's a fair distinction, I think. She's just, she's just fucked in the head and she's fucked in the head because of all the fucked up, awful, shitty people in Westeros utilizing her for whatever political gain or power that they can achieve through her. And I think that's a sad reflection on the nobility of Westeros from characters like Hoster Tully to John Aaron to Littlefinger. All these characters, all these characters treat her like shit. Well said, sir. Uh, I can't really top that. I just want to say before we move on that when we're talking about Lysa's boob, the reason that we're not especially, we're, the reason we're grimacing and moaning, to be clear, is not just because, oh, woman parts, or right. because how dare you breastfeed no, yeah. in public. It's, it's specifically that Lysa is using it to infantilize like infantilize, to infantilize yeah. sweet robin the fact that he's as old as he is yeah the fact that it comes out of nowhere in the scene and that it's in front of catelyn that's right. the weirdness of it i just want to be clear before no, we get yeah. any angry comments that we're not saying public breastfeeding is bad we're trying to shame women's bodies in general no. it's the specific context of how lysa is using it in that scene that just comes off as just oh why 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 what are you doing no that's that's an important distinction that's one i probably sh- i probably should have made when i was talking about my disgust we are not stannis we like women just fine we like women just fine we do indeed <laughs> oh that's a good transition to our likes and dislikes of this chapter huh? exactly we can't possibly get in the trouble for that so jeff what do you like about this here chapter a game of thrones catelyn six catelyn six is great because it gives me an opportunity to hold the bad, evil people who are ugly to account. 
Yay! So many ugly, wrong people hold stupid opinions that a feast for crows, but especially a dance with dragons, is just world building via lavish scene descriptions with no plot progression. And that this only came about after a storm of swords when Martin really dropped the ball in writing A Song of Ice and Fire. And man, are you ever fucking wrong here. This chapter, we get a ton of world building and, you know, a plethora of lavish scene descriptions. But it, th- but this chapter, really similar to A Feast for Crows and A Dance with Dragons, works to help set the scene and the story for future plot movement. Moreover, like so much of the scene descriptors for this chapter really help to kind of imagine the world of the veil as both a meaningful setting that will be as both a meaningful setting and a place that is going to be extraordinarily important is going to be extraordinarily important to both Catelyn and Tyrion's arcs in a Game of Thrones as well as Sansa's A Storm of Swords and A Feast for Crows arc. So I like this chapter for a multitude and variety of reasons, but I especially like this chapter on this reread because I want to be like those people who are like feast and dance are just a bunch of filler that Martin lost the ball. You're wrong. And you've been wrong since 1996. Thank you. I'll be here all night. Beautifully done, sir. Take that all you losers and haters out there. (laughs) May that warm you in the fires of your non-existent hearts. No, obviously I completely agree. Uh, This chapter, I think, is a great example of not only world building that's gorgeous in itself, but world building that does actually contribute to and provide important context for plot and character points. Precisely. Martin generally does a good job of that, and I think he also does a good job of that in Feast and Dance. I think the real problem there is that the books came out so far apart that a lot of the setup has just been sitting there on the page as setup, and eventually that just gets frustrating. I think if Feast came out in 2002 and Dance came out in 2005 and the series was already over at this point, I think those two books would be a lot more beloved than they are. But that, of course, is a point we've already talked about a little bit on our uh, first Patreon episode about why Dance with Dragons is better than A Storm of Swords, and it is, of course, a point we will touch on much more as we get in closer to the books in question. It's really good because I was, I was thinking about this and I'm sorry, I know I'm going on a tangent. I apologize. That's what I do in this podcast that, um, you know, we have things like Volantis that's set up majorly in a dance with dragons. You have places like the water gardens that are lavishly described by George in a feast for crows. And we don't see the payoff for why these places are being set up as, as important as George is setting them up. And the reason being is, you know, we haven't seen the winds of winter yet here. We get a whole lot of scene set up and establishing the veil as a location for payoffs that we see in storm and in a feast for crows. So we already have some of the payoffs here. So yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. That's a fair distinction. We just, we've just had more time to see the payoff. But as you say, that doesn't mean there's a qualitative difference between what Martin is doing in the books, right? It's still foreshadowing. It's still integrating character dynamics with the location. It's just that we, once, once we get to wins, I think what happened in Feast and Dance will seem a lot more normal and a lot more similar to the first three books. I completely agree. So what what'd you like about this chapter? Something I like is uh, that I think Catelyn and Brynden's relationship feels very lived in. Yes. You get a sense of the strong history between these two. I mean, you could say your home is in my heart is a little flowery, but it resonates when he leaves the veil with her to return to the place they were both born. I, hmm. I love the sense of a close-knit family history with the Tullys that they've had lots of debates before lots of <laughs> lots of discussions about policy and I love how wonderfully he both he, he subtly implies that she is fit to rule unlike Lysa when Catelyn says a woman can rule as well as a man and, Lysa, and Brennan says the right woman with a sidelong glance at her implying that he <laughs> thinks of her as that way but at the same time he'll still critique how she handles Tyrion he critiques her very lovingly for it 
but he does critique her for it. So I, 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 I like that balance. You get the sense that the Tullys are a, a really politically minded family, a pol- family that talks about politics in a way that the, that the Starks aren't quite because of Ned's kind of trauma here and the way that the Lannisters never were. Um, even Edmure, in his own way, is interested in, in politics and, and his responsibilities. Uh, so I like that sense of a strong backstory between Catelyn and Brynden. comes through really strongly in this scene. Yeah, it's it's so cool about Catelyn and Brynden's relationship in that Martin clearly had an idea of how these two interacted previously and had established their backstory in his own mind. And of course, he expands it out throughout the first three books. And that really does a wonder in really creating this this feeling that it's it's lived in as as you said it's really cool and and i i know it's cheesy but your home is in my heart is is i like it i like it too it's cute it it, it feels corny but i like it yeah but people are corny man you know like that's one of the things that that i just feel like that kind of needs to emphasize is that people aren't always just uttering these badass statements or always have like the coolest line in mind in order to like interact with people, sometimes people just say something stupid. I mean, you've heard me talking on this podcast now for 34 episodes. I don't always say the, the coolest badass things, although I try. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. Buddy. Every <laughs> every word from your lips is, is just a pearl gifted to the gods. But now, of course, we all say cute emotional things in the moment. So I like that. It does feel, especially after Catelyn saying her heart is turned to stone. It, it's it's yeah, nice. It is really nice. It kind of like provides like a glimmer of hope that not everything is going to go to shit in the veil. Exactly. And, you know, it doesn't all go to shit in the veil because Brendan Tully does depart with Catelyn back to assist Rob Stark in his uh, quest for independence for the North and for the Riverlands. True. He walks away just like uh, Ned did yep. in the past chapter, actually. Now, uh, on the flip side, what do you like? What do you dislike about this chapter, sir? What do you like less? <sighs> yeah. So as much as I really love the flyer imagery and enjoy the scene descriptions and everything. This chapter is long. It's our longest chapter yet, I think, as far as, as if I'm clocking it out correctly. It, I don't really mm-hmm. mind long chapters per se. And I, I know that George, when he was writing this chapter, was likely like thinking that he had a lot of ground to cover in terms of world building, setting things up for the future, introducing us to Brendan Tully and Lysa and Sweet Robin and showing us the veil as a setting and showing us how important it is. But maybe there's a little bit of room to cut some fat here. Maybe take the scene descriptors. I know. I know. Maybe take those scene descriptors down a notch. Maybe pick the chapter Ooh. up. With, yeah, I know. Boo me. Maybe pick the chapter up with Catelyn riding the veil with Brendan Tully and cut all the Donald Wainwood stuff out. You know, the dude is extraordinarily, utterly unimportant to the plot going forward. And, you know, you can even name drop him in a paragraph of retrospect if you really want to do it that way. But he doesn't show up again we learn that he's named the knight of the gate after Brendan Tully leaves but that that that's it that that's all we get about Donald Waywood he's just a named character that kind of pops on the screen for a hot second and drops and has not been seen since but maybe he'll, he'll be seen again again I, I really don't mind how descriptive how descriptive the chapter is but as you guys probably sensed from my uh, my summary <laughs> of it it's fucking yeah. long man it's super super long maybe a touch too long in my opinion that's especially a fair point, I think, in contrast with the Ned chapters that are on either side of it, Edward 8 and Edward 9. Yeah. As we said in our episode on Edward 8, and we'll probably mention again in Edward 9, those two chapters feel to a certain extent like they were at one point the same chapter. Yep. That, that got cut into two as part of the writing process. Catalan 6 does have kind of the opposite problem where it feels like it's three chapters smushed yeah. into each other. Because, like, entering the veil, then, you know, beholding it in the meeting with the Blackfish is one scene. Right. Climbing the Giant's Lance is an entirely separate scene. And then there's an, uh, com- another scene on top of that with Lysa and Sweet Robin. 
where you can, yeah, you can see this chapter stretching the length a bit. And I agree. I think you could. Well, I think Sir Donald's kind of like bluster makes a nice contrast with Catalan's melancholy. I think you could absolutely just open this chapter on the description of the blackfish, like riding down from the, the bloody gate yeah, and go from there and probably cut a little fat. I think that's a fair criticism. Yeah. You know, you get a, uh, in, in feast when Jamie encounters the blackfish, we don't get the build up to Jamie crossing, you know, from the fray lines to the bridge and get his, his memories of things. We open to Brendan Tully riding out to Jamie Lannister at the drawbridge at River Run. And then from there, we get some of the backstory, explore a little bit between the two characters. But, you know, it, it's all good. Again, like George <laughs> had a lot of ground to cover here. I don't, I, you know, I, I'm not bitter or angry that he indulges some of his great descriptions and, and his descriptive abilities to write beautiful, engaging scenes. But just a little long. That's all. What about you? What did you dislike about this chapter? Uh, well, I think as much as I was praising uh, and pontificating about Catelyn's arc on the mountain and how it acts as a nice metaphor for nobility and the hero's journey and how she has to kind of like contrast her her presumptions with the reality of Maya Stone's expertise, I do feel like Martin kind of left her arc hanging <laughs> unresolved here. Like, Okay, so you have like you have what should be like a three beat story arc for Catelyn here. First beat is Catelyn dislikes Maya at first because of an irrational association with John. Sure, that's set up quite well. Second beat, Maya graciously saved Catelyn's ass in a humiliating moment <laughs> for the latter. Also happens, well executed. The third beat of that should be Catelyn takes this to heart in some way, but she really doesn't. Like this doesn't impact her decision making. It doesn't come up like later when she's thinking about John as Rob's heir. In a storm of swords, this doesn't challenge Catelyn's perceptions or become a teachable moment for her. And I'm not saying it's mandatory that it has to, that everything that happens to a character teach them in some way. But it does it does seem to be the way the chapter is structured, like that's where it's going. Like yeah. it has those first two beats, and then it just doesn't quite seem to put the pieces together. So as much as I was praising that stuff, it does entirely say stay subtext. It never becomes text, which is kind of surprising to me. It is surprising because it is something that you would imagine that Catelyn would explore. You had that throwaway line, but it's not exactly throwaway, but it's only a single line where Catelyn thinks about Maya and compares her to Jon Snow and how she feels both guilt and anger over Jon Snow. But that's not that's kind of a single line. And then it's dropped after that as Catelyn continues ascending the mountain. I do think that Martin could have indulged a little bit of learning in terms of Catelyn because the character is constantly growing one one way or the other in a story and also in real life for that matter and having her be like hey there is some worth and value to bastards that they're not simply a impediment and a potential threat to my heirs and potential threat to my family that they can also assist and aid and kind of help out or help out my family would have been an interesting beat, especially when you consider some of Jon Snow's later stuff in which he almost rides south to, to save Robb Stark, in which yeah, John does exactly. all of these things on behalf of the Starks themselves. Even, you know, at the end of A Dance with Dragons, you know, reading the pink letter in front of everyone and saying that he's planning on marching on Winterfell to save Arya Stark. You know, these things look like, in retrospect now, after A Dance with Dragons has been published for, for seven years now, that... There are places where George could have opened up the possibility that, hey, there is worth to bastards and that bastards aren't necessarily going to just stab you in the back when you're not looking, that they can have value. They can help you. And in the case of the bastard that Catelyn Stark is most familiar with, Jon Snow, he does do a lot on behalf of his family, on behalf of her children and on behalf of the uh, 
of what he considers his brothers and his half brothers and sisters. Yeah, I think. I mean, obviously, you could still have Catelyn, you know, not wanting Rob to name John for a variety of reasons. But this could provide her a struggle with that. Like, yeah. I could imagine her thinking to herself in that conversation, "Oh, but what about that girl in the veil? Maybe there's, you know, have it be a struggle." Yeah. Um, especially like given the imagery in this chapter, uh, the fact that. Trap castles named Stone and Snow, common right. bastard names, are supporting the Eyrie, acting as defenses. That's like a visual metaphor for how a bastard within a noble house can support the main house. Right. And, you know, act as guardians, act as, as watchmen and overseers. And Maya is performing that role, and Catelyn doesn't really seem to accept it or even really notice it. So I think that's something you could have done. But speaking of stone imagery, <laughs> that nice leads transition. nicely into our... F- Thank you, sir. Into our foreshadowing and groundwork section, the most obvious of which comes right away early on in the chapter. We've already touched on it a couple times. When Catelyn is looking back on how she's kind of had to harden herself against the losses of the journey, she thinks to herself, sometimes she felt as though her heart had turned to stone. <laughs> well, that's subtle. So this is, one of, this is one of those cases, as we've touched on before and will again going forward, where you can see that even though... This fate was not in the pitch letter for Catelyn. Yeah. That it, by the time Martin has put Game of Thrones, sent it to the publishers, put it out into the world, he has already conceived of Lady Stoneheart as the endpoint for for Catelyn's arc. Because uh, an image like that, again, is just not subtle at all. No, especially in the regards to people she has lost, which directly connects to Lady Stoneheart and her revenge quest. Yeah, even if he hadn't necessarily thought of Stoneheart, and I'm fairly convinced that he had envisioned Stoneheart, but some people would probably make the argument that, no, he hadn't thought of Stoneheart at this point. This is just a coincidence. Even if he hadn't thought of Stoneheart, he does have the potential of, George George R. R. Martin does have the potential of going back, rereading this line from Catelyn's chapter and being like, ah, her heart had turned to stone. She's a lady. She's Lady Stoneheart. And that can be... Sure, uh, sure. George and his kind of guarding method of writing, that could have been the way that it came about. But I really do think that George had it in mind at this point. You know, much more than that line later in, in, in A Game of Thrones about the the hero cutting off uh, Jano Slint's head. People have been like, ah, oh, well, that, yeah, is, right. that is directly foreshadowing that Jon Snow was going to cut off Jano Slint's head in A Dance of Dragons. Well... It wasn't intended that way, and and we'll, we'll talk about that when we get to the end of uh, end of a Game of Thrones in that Sansa chapter. But um, this one feels much more direct foreshadowing and groundwork for Catelyn becoming Lady Stoneheart after her death at the Red Wedding. Yeah, that's a fair distinction because I think that that's a good example that John and Sansa connection. That's very clearly Martin. I think going back and going, oh, you know what would be cool? I had <laughs> Sansa say this, so now I'm going to do this because that's such a specific thing, so distant away in the books that I sincerely doubt Martin already had planned in A Game of Thrones for Jon specifically to execute Jaina Slint. I think that was an example of him going back later and getting inspiration. Um, another sm- another small bit of groundwork uh, we get in this chapter that's a little less obvious, but I noticed this time around. Also, when Catelyn is thinking about her losses, that same part of the chapter, she thinks six brave men had died to bring her this far, and she could not even find it in her to weep for them. Even their names were fading. <laughs> And that reminds me of how in Ned's Tower of Joy chapter, a few chapters down the road, uh, the faces of the men who rode with him have faded, even though they fought for him and died for him, went into the mountains with him, the same way as they went to the mountains with Catelyn. Similarly, they, their names are faded in that sense of mm. melancholy at, at losing, losing something important about the people who gave their lives for you. I think it's got that same emotion in common. Yeah, I could have put it better. I think that's that's spot on. It's a great allusion to what Ned Stark is going to be recounting in his fever dream in, in Edward 10. That's, that's fantastic. I think it's a great catch in this chapter. Kind of in a less 
less interesting note. Um, there's there's a note in this chapter that Chicken had died, and it's it's said without Catelyn going into detail. But in Tyrion's sixth chapter, we get the full story where Tyrion recounts to Bronn about how you were quick enough to silence your friend Chicken when he caught that arrow in his belly. Bronn had yanked back the man's head by the hair and driven the point of his dirk under in under the ear, and afterward told Catelyn Stark that the other sellsword had died of his wound. So we get some contextualization to Bronze to Bronze Stark to Bronn and allowing us to see that Bronn is a black hearted bastard and he is willing to do immoral things for the greater good or for survival would probably be a, a better way of putting it. Very good point, sir. And that it, I think it fits that we only learn the full extent of what Bronn did in a Tyrion chapter, because Tyrion has that more kind of cynical POV yes. and understands Bronn at that level. So that kind of fits him more than it would fit a Catelyn chapter. So I think that works well. Uh, but speaking of Catelyn, tell us about how she's not wrong, Jeff. Yes. Tell us about something else she's not wrong about. Catelyn is never wrong, part one million. <laughs> so in this chapter, she's talking with Maya Stone and talking about her relationship to Michael Redford. And she thinks, quote, his love she might be, but no Redford would ever wed a bastard. His family would arrange a more suitable match for him to a Corbray or a Wainwood or a Royce or perhaps a daughter of some greater house outside of the Vale. If Michael Redford laid with this girl at all, it would be on the wrong side of the sheet. Um, just a little historical note. Wrong side of the sheet means that it's they're not married. So it's uh, having sex out of out of marriage, outside of marriage is a, kind of a more archaic way of describing it. So in A Feast for Crows, we learned that Maya and Michael did indeed bang and they did indeed bang on the wrong side of the sheet. But then Michael had been married off to a Royce, where Miranda Royce is telling Sansa, who is Elaine at this point, she says... You know, our Maya's not a maid, I trust. Sansa did. Fat Maddie had whispered to her one time and Maya brought up their supplies. Maddie told me. Of course she did. She has a mouth as big as her thighs. Gosh. Some great Miranda <laughs> scenes here. And her thighs yep. are enormous. Michael Redford was the one. He used to be Lynn Corbury's squire, a real squire. Not like that loudish lad Sir Lynn's got squiring for him now. He only took that one fawn for coin, they say. Michael was the best swordsman, young swordsman in the Vale and gallant. Or so poor Maya thought. Till he wed one of Bronze Jan's daughters. Lord Horton gave him no choice in the matter, I am sure. But it was a cruel thing to do to Maya. So... Yeah, it's just uh, more of a showing us that Catelyn is has a correct understanding of how feudalism works. Is that Maya, much like Sansa, is in love with a with a boy who, unfortunately, is outside of her social station. Even though that she is a royal bastard, she does have a disadvantage in being a a bastard and not being able to marry into the family of the Redfords. Yes, and that ties directly into the kind of the themes of disillusionment and the the real pettiness and chaos behind the ordered image of feudalism that we were talking about earlier, which will come up again and again in both Sansa and Catelyn's chapters. And to go back to the Blackfish's kind of crows on a battlefield metaphor will uh, happen with the Vale as a whole, because the next time the Lords of the Vale gather together, it won't be to ask for that, the, the hand of the Lady Lysa in marriage, but to gather for war in the mm. wake of her death. Oh, so that yeah. process kind of continues hand in hand, and I'm very much looking forward to those uh, Veil Feast for Crows chapters. There's not many of them, but what we do have are really good. Yeah. So those, those, those are going to be fun to read when we get all these all these cast of characters back together again. Yeah. Each of those Veil chapters are extremely long in A Feast for Crows, which is a, uh, a precedent that's set by this, this Catelyn chapter, which, again, is extremely long. But let's talk a little bit more about the Veil and what it means and what it's going to mean in The Winds of Winter, because this chapter doesn't have a lot of 
I mean, you could talk about things like, is Sweet Robin actually the son of Littlefinger, which has been a theory that's been bounced around. But I think we're going to save the one for a later, probably Storm of Swords, Sansa chapter. Here, let's yeah. talk a little bit about the veil on kind of a wider scope. So let's expand our scope away from A Game of Thrones and on into A Feast for Crows and The Winds of Winter. Given how much world building and groundwork this chapter does for the Vale of Aaron, what do we think is going to be Sansa's plot in the Vale? Who's going to live? More importantly, who's going to die? Who's going to tell your story? I just had to throw the Hamilton reference in there on behalf of Chloe, a.k.a. Liza Arbor, because she wouldn't forgive me if I didn't. Ah, but so, yeah, so I think I think it's fair to say that uh, the Vale is probably going to get its last hurrah in the winds of winter. Yes. Unless Martin pulls a contrivance we're not seeing. It doesn't seem likely for them, anyone to have any reason to go back there once Sansa leaves. Mm-hmm. So you can see the veil in the Winds of Winter as laid out in the the excellent Sansa preview chapter is kind of this, this roiling hive of all these little factions and plans and intricacies, once again going on underneath the surface of perfect placid feudalism working as is ordered. Right. So to go through the kind of the cast of characters, obviously uh, our, our POV is Sansa Stark. She's under the pseudonym of Elaine Stone, pretending to be Littlefinger's bastard daughter. Although there is, of course, some debate to be had about who, how many people actually believe that or not is kind of yeah. an open question at this point. Uh, Little is Littlefinger, Peter Baelish, Lord Protector of the Vale, who attained that position by Lysa kind of not so voluntarily leaving him in charge <laughs> of Sweet Robin, the actual, delicately put, I know, yes. Sweet Robin, the actual Lord of the Vale. Uh, there is the new character of uh, Harold Harding, a.k.a. Harry the Heir, who is, as Littlefinger outlines, in kind of a spellbinding scene, is is Sweet Robin's heir, despite being a distant cousin, mm-hmm. uh, through a list of like horrible accidents right. that have befallen the Aaron family. It's that that whole paragraph is when Littlefinger is describing that is very like the the series of unfortunate events books by yeah. by Lemony Snicket. Just a series of horrible things happening for no real reason. <laughs> uh, so this is kind of propped up Harry the heir, who is very much the kind of arrogant. Knight of the Vale, asshole like Sir Hugh, like Sir Waymar, like Sir Donal. He's very much that archetype. Uh, other supporting characters of import are, are the Royces, Bronze Jan, the most powerful lord in the Vale, his, his cousin Nestor, Lord of the Gates of the Moon, the Littlefinger is one to his side. Uh, there is uh, Lynn Corbray, this kind of dashing, dangerous knight who's super violent and, and not so secretly gay slash pedophilic. Which of these? Do we know which one he is? We don't although there's really been, the been emphasized theory yeah I, i've seen the theory that he's a pedophile but i've also seen the theory that when they talk about that little fingers bribed him with gold and boys that boys is more like ah, oh, like we're just off to see the boys you know off. right exactly so martin's, martin's sometimes does not do a good job making a distinction here between these two things i gotta no. say yeah uh, sometimes it's really not clear but yeah so anyway lynn corbray is a dangerous dude used to work for little finger kind of not clear if he still is uh, there's Miranda Royce, another Royce who has become kind of Sansa's BFF slash Marjorie replacement mm-hmm. uh, while Sansa is in the Vale. And then uh, one of my personal favorites is uh, Sir Shadrach, mm-hmm. uh, the Mad Mouse, a hedge knight that Brienne encountered on the road and has popped up in the Vale, who is trying to, seems to know exactly who Elaine Stone is. Yes. And is intending to snatch Sansa for a reward promised him by Varys. So there are a lot of interests at work. There's Sansa's own journey. There's Littlefinger trying to consolidate control of the Vale. Uh, there's Harry the Air trying to, you know, move his way up. 
there's the Royces and their own plans. There's Lynn Corbray and his kind of violent schemes. And then there's Sir Shadrick. So it's potential for a lot of different things to happen, depending on who succeeds. So that's one of the reasons that the veil is worth talking about as a plot, I think, is, is all the little possibilities. So, yeah, you know, we got that question today from Sir Grant the Scribe, who had asked us, what are some surprises or curveballs that Martin is going to throw at us in the winds of winter? I think we could see the veil as a place where we will see a story that we didn't get see we did we didn't see on the small screen in Game of Thrones season five, six, and seven, where yep. they have essentially they shortcutted Sansa getting north. We won't talk about the Sansa Bolton arc because I think that's <laughs> there's been enough ink shed about that right now. And we'll have much more opportunity to talk sure. about that in in the years to come. But good call, buddy. It's really fascinating because this location has all of these different conspiracies to play. You got Littlefinger, who's attempting to gain control of the Vale and utilize them in order to boost Sansa Stark to being the Queen of the North and to have him be the real power behind the throne. You've got Bronzian Royce, who's attempting to rally the remaining Lord's Declarant, the remaining Lord's Declarant, and. You've got other characters like Sir, Sir Shadrick, the, the Mad Mouse, who looks to be trying to gain Sansa Stark in order to gain that purse of gold from Varys. But one of the things we talk about in this chapter is the Bloody Gate as a location. And it's not really, this is the only chapter where we really get a, a good view of it. And I was really taken by this line from the Elaine sample chapter, where Sansa is recounting all the different folks who are coming to uh to the gates, they're at the gates of the moon, right? Yes, yes, yeah. they are. So they're at the gates of the moon for this tournament, to the tournament at the Wing of Knights. And the quote is: "The competitors came from all over the Vale, from the mountain valleys and the coast, from Gulltown and the Bloody Gate, even the Three Sisters." Kind of seems a little problematic that the bulwark of Vale defense has some of its best fighters at this tournament of the Wing of Knights instead of you know maintain the fucking watch when you have all sorts of dangers outside of the gates, outside of the Bloody Gate. You know, you have to wonder who might exploit this. Is there like a faction maybe somewhere that's <laughs> might want to kind of get into the veil and run ape shit all over the veil? Yeah, there is. And it is the Mountain Clansmen. And one of the things about the Mountain Clansmen that we are going to find out later in A Game of Thrones is that Tyrion decides to arm them all as both vengeance against the as vengeance against the Aarons and against Lysa, but also because they had helped get him out of the, the Vale and out of the mountains and had supported Tywin Lannister's war in the Riverlands and eventually end up with Tyrion down in King's Landing too. So we have this line from A Clash of Kings where there's the, the small council meeting and Tyrion is talking and someone else says, Lysa has woes of her own. Clansmen raiding out of the mountains of the moon in greater numbers than ever before and better armed. Distressing, said Tyrion Lannister, who had armed them. I could help her with that. <laughs> a word for me. So I kind of wonder, we talked about how Donald Wainwood is kind of a, such a, not even a tertiary character. He's so outside of like the levels of, of, of a character that you kind of wonder why he's introduced here. But I do wonder whether he might make a reappearance in The Winds of Winter, either, either potentially being in the tourney, because one of the things he talks about is how he's bummed that Lysa had forbid all the knights to go participate in the tourney. Or running for his fucking life after the clansmen overwhelm the gate because all of the best men are at the tournament instead of holding the fucking watch against the against the clansmen. But that's just one potential piece that kind of connects the Greater Winds of Winter plot to this chapter itself. So much more can happen in in the Winds of Winter in the Vale. Now I, I've got I've got a list of questions that I'm just going to throw at you one by one because I think that you have a better handle on what you think is going to happen in the Winds of Winter in the Vale than I do. So. 
will Sweet Robin die? Yes or yes? <laughs> Pretty much, right? <laughs> yeah, this is among the most obvious deaths, I think, in the Winds of Winter. So much so that I think a lot of people have maybe contorted themselves into thinking, oh, it's not going to happen because it's too obvious, right. which I think is just a rabbit hole that you just don't want to go down. Yeah. Like, no, when the setup is strong, the setup is strong. Littlefinger, I think, from the way Sansa and Maester Coleman talk about in A Feast for Crows, has been not just using Sweet Sleep to medicate Sweet Robin, but has been steadily poisoning him with yeah. it, with the extent of either with, with, withholding it or giving him a fatal overdose at some point. Um, so I especially think that seems likely to happen in the middle of the tourney of Winged Knights, like having this tournament that's there to, uh, to create a uh, system of guards for him. Right. He's going to die in the middle of that. There, there, that's an irony I think fits Martin perfectly in the same way that Joffrey died at his own wedding feast, surrendered by all his Kingsguard yeah. in all their glittering glory. I think that's going to be a similar deal with Sweet Robin. So, yeah, I think he's 100% dead. It's been set up strongly. That's the kind of spark you need for the Veil plot to explode into chaos. And if he doesn't die, then really Harry the Heir is not even worth introducing. No, so I think, Sweet Robin's, I think Sweet Robin's death is practically guaranteed, yes. I, I agree with that, too. And, you know, we, we talked about this in, in Eddard 6 about how uh, about how Sir Hugh's death was so prominent and seen in front of everyone. And we had pointed the finger at Littlefinger as being the potential culprit behind it. To me, Sweet Robin dying at the turn of the Winged Knights gives Littlefinger a bit of plausible deniability of being like, I was here the whole time. I had nothing to do with his death. You saw him die of that shaking, of that shaking yep. sickness that he has. I was attempting to medicate him. Ask Coleman. He was doing, I had instructed him to give him the correct medications. Mr. Coleman, what was the exact medications that you gave him? <laughs> oh, you overdosed yeah, him? Hmm. Off, off with his head before he could protest. Right, right. Yeah. Exactly. There's the little finger always has to have a patsy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I think it's also possible there is this little back and forth between Sansa and Miranda Royce in Sansa's released Winds of Winter chapter that alludes to like Lynn Corbury, Lynn Corbury having been working for Littlefinger, but then Littlefinger having cutting him off and betrayed him and siding with Lionel Corbury, his brother instead. So I wonder if Littlefinger might end up framing Sir Lynn for Sweet Robin's hmm. death in some way. That would be a good way to get Sir Lynn off the table, but we'll see. Regardless, I'm sure Littlefinger has a patsy in mind, regardless of who it is. Agreed. Okay, second question. Will Sir, S- will Sir Shadrick, it's kind of hard to say, make an attempt to abduct Sansa? Will he be unsuccessful or unsuccessful? Again, kind of kind of burying the lead there, buddy, but yes, absolutely. <laughs> I, th- I think Sir Shadrick's attempt there, I can't imagine it's actually going to be successful. I think everything about Sansa's plot at this point points to her going north, yeah. not back to King's Landing. Uh, the only way I could see it is if it's he's supposed to get her on the road and then run it to Jamie and Brienne, but I don't think that's likely either. I think mostly what Sir Shadrick is, is there to do is to try to run away with her, fail, but in doing so, reveal who she is. I think that's how Sansa gets out of the Sansa Stark, not Elaine Stone, is because Sir Shadrick wouldn't try to just run off and capture some random bastard, even the Lord Protector's bastard. So I think that's kind of going to give away the game, especially if Sir Shadrick talks. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's what I think that plot function is of the Mad Mouse's little quest is to just, I think it's going to get revealed and he's going to get beheaded along with Littlefinger's Patsy, which is unfortunate because I like him quite a bit as a minor character, but I don't think he's long for this world. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I do... I, I've had, I've, you know, this this isn't one of my list of questions, but what's your take on that fifth suitor theory that's kind of banded about, about Sansa Stark being the suitor for Aegon VI down in King's Landing? I know that's, I know that there's more nuance. The Ashford Attorney theory. Yeah, right. the Ashford Attorney theory. Yeah, I think that's interesting. If you're not familiar with it, people have lined up comparisons 
um, between uh, Sansa and the suitors at the Ashford Tourney. That like, there's, there's lots of common terms of the families that you can go through. The people Sansa was betrothed to when they line up uh, with that historical detail from uh, Baratheon to a Tyrell to a Lannister to a Harding even. And the Targaryen would be the last one. Yeah. A couple things there. One, I think the Targaryen could also be Jon, uh, not sure. Young Griff. Um, and the other possibility is that it's just pure coincidence because at this point... Looking at the Winds of Winter released chapters, it seems so clear that Ariane is being set up mm-hmm. to be Egan's suitor and to be the bride that kind of gets him to break his proposed marriage pact with Danny. So I can't Sansa throwing Sansa into that. I think is just over egging the pudding at this point. Yeah, egging because Egan, you get it. Ah, <laughs> uh, we get um, it. There's a, there's already too many elements at play in Young Griff's storyline as it is, frankly, and they got to be cut down. So I don't think Sansa's being added to that mix. So that is the Ashford Tourney theory is interesting and well discovered, though. I will certainly give it that. I I will give it as well. It uh, comes from our friend. Nobody suspects ever suspects the butterfly. Was the person yep. who at first uh, originated, and she has kind of made this similar points in that she's looking at the parallels as opposed to saying, "Ah, this is going to be a plot for plot." What's going to happen yeah, with, with Sansa? So there's there's more nuance in what she's saying than than simply like, "Ah, well, Sansa is definitely going to be one of the suitors for, or rather, is going to be the bride for for Aegon, Aegon the Sixth." Because I don't I don't think that's going to happen. Even though at one point I did think that theory was possible. I do think that the whole Snowcastle scene at the end of Storm of Swords strongly points to Sansa going north in yes. the Winds of Winter. Couldn't agree more, sir. All right. What you got next for me? So my next question was going to be, how will Sansa be revealed? You already answered that one at the wedding to Harry before that. You already answered that one as well before the wedding. Um, I, I do think there is a potential. So I, I talked about the Klansmen attacking the Bloody Gate and overwhelming it. And there's a potential that they could attack the gates of the moon, and maybe that's when Sir Shadrick makes his attempt to abduct Sansa Stark. That would be a nice distraction, so that does make sense. Yeah. I mean, the tourney itself is also a nice distraction, too, but... Oh, true. Again, a lot of folks are looking at Sansa and at Elaine, and you, you do wonder of whether Miranda Royce maybe will like catch Sir Shadrick kind of like stealing off with Sansa, and she'll be end up being... You know her salvation, and then she'll be like, "Ah, but why would? But why would Sir Shadrick really want to like abduct you?" Wait, a something doesn't add up. I would, I would dearly love to see Harry the Air attempt to rescue Sansa and make a complete botch of it, and then and like com- like trip over his sword or some yes. shit, and then have and then have Miranda have to save the day with like an eye roll. I do think that fits both their characters pretty well. Oh yeah. So as, as someone as someone who likes Miranda Royce a lot. And thinks Harry the Air is an idiot. Uh, that that would that would delight my heart. Agreed. There. All right. In place of that, though, what you what you got next? Question wise. All right. I've got three more questions. First, will the veil go north with Sansa? Will Littlefinger's scheme work itself out? Even if the avenue that Littlefinger is attempting here is not going to necessarily work out, if there's going to be attacked by the clansmen, which Littlefinger is not anticipating. If Sir Shadrick attempts to abduct Sansa, which Littlefinger does not seem to be anticipating, will the veil still go north with Sansa? Yes, I think so. As you say, there's going to be plenty of twists and turns. Littlefinger does not anticipate. But yeah, I think Sansa's journey has been putting, pointing north for a while for a number of factors, including the Snowcastle scene that you brought up. I think it fits her overall arc of getting more and more politically confident in herself and in what she's doing that she would end up with an army she has to kind of direct and take control of. I think that makes sense as a step for her going forward. And I think you can see strong parallels to it with the recently released Fire and Blood excerpt to bring us back around to sure. the beginning. With good Queen Alicent's progression through White Harbor into Winterfell, I think that was in part setting up a parallel to how Sansa will perform a similar journey. So yeah, I think strongly 
that while might not be as many Knights of the Vale as, as she would like if they get into a battle with the Klansmen, and I certainly yeah. don't think they're going to do well against the others, I do think that, yeah, the Vale going north with Sansa is, is a plot point that will, will occur in the books. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that pretty much answers my next question. Is this something that the show revealed? I, I think the show is, is showing us the outcome, if not necessarily the exact plot progression of how the Vale gets yep. to the north. But the Vale Knights ending up in the north seems like something that is extraordinarily likely to happen. And, you know, it, it does make sense in this chapter itself when we're talking about Donald Wainwood being like, why is everyone just sitting around in the Vale not doing anything? Well, the reason why is because Littlefinger is instructing Lysa to keep the Vale out of out of the War of the Five or the upcoming War of the Five Kings. But also Martin, too, is attempting to keep an army unblooded and ready to march on behalf yes. of Sansa Stark up to the north. Well said. Both Littlefinger and Martin are keeping them in reserve. I think that's exactly what's happening. Yep. Yes, indeed. So, final question. When does Harry the heir die? Not soon enough. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, obviously, like, the dude's... The dude has the red coloration on his on his crest, and his last name is Harding. He's a red herring. Like, it's, uh-huh. it's, not, some of the, it's not some of the subtlest stuff. Uh, Chloe, a.k.a. Eliza Narber, has pointed that out before. Uh, it's it's and just the way he's such so clearly a mook and thinks so highly of himself, and is again that that tradition in the story with the Knights of the Vale thinking so highly of themselves, and then coming to nothing. Robar Royce, Renly's uh, one of Renly's Rainbow Guard, is another good example of that. Given all that, I think Sir Harry is pretty clearly going to die before too long. I th- I got to think he lasts longer than Sweet Robin, but I wouldn't give him much longer than that. Again, I think it's possible maybe even that Sir Shadrach kills him because Sir Shadrach seems to know what he's doing with a sword and Harry might not. Yeah. I think and then Sansa would have to take control herself. I go back and forth on whether Martin is intending for Sansa to actually get married and have sex at this point in her story. Yeah. I don't really know, especially with the, the five-year gap not happening. I don't know if Martin is really quite willing to take that plunge, in which case he needs to get Harry killed sooner than that. But I could also see it possible that Harry ends up going down a lot like Waymar Royce, like going hmm. into battle all bold and confident, but then ends up surrounded and killed by the others. That would also make a, a nice parallel in terms of these being these young, arrogant knights of the Vale. So while he seems certain to me to die and to be, uh, you know, kind of kind of die with a womp womp kind of yep, <laughs> never amounted to much kind of ending. Uh, I think it's debatable when exactly. Again, all I would say is that he lasts at least a little bit longer than Sweet Robin. Yeah, I'm... What do you think? Yeah, I'm curious, man, because I I can see Shadrick offing Harry, but I also can see Littlefinger doing something and getting Harry mm-hmm. killed. Because Littlefinger... And this kind of gets obscured a little bit because... We get that scene where Littlefinger kisses Sansa in her final storm chapter and we get her being we get him being creepy to Sansa in feast. But it seems to me that Littlefinger's primary primary motivation in getting Sansa to the north is to set himself up as the concert for Sansa, as the person sure, sure. who Sansa is going to marry. And I don't think I, I really, really don't think that Littlefinger is going to allow Sansa to get married to have Harry, you know, take, and this is, of course, Littlefinger's own bit of toxic masculinity here, take Sansa's virginity because that belongs to him because he is the one right. that earned Sansa's <laughs> hand in marriage and, and earned Sansa's maidenhead as well. That seems like a very Littlefinger, creepy, shitty, awful, creepy finger thing, creepy finger thing to do. And I feel like that he's going to find a way to kill Harry the heir, probably not directly. You can't imagine Littlefinger, you know, stabbing nah. Harry necessarily, but you can imagine him like getting him killed, being like, ah, the mountain clansmen are racing off to the to the mountains. 
Quick, Harry, after them. Just you, no one Chase else. Chase them, alone, <laughs> with your one sword. You're so dashing and brave, my favorite Harry. You'll, you'll be able to do it. Go, go, go. Right. Exactly. Um, I could definitely see that happening. And something that just struck me is that, like, maybe Harry the Air is to the Littlefinger plot as Viserys is to the Varus and Illyrio hmm. plot. Is it, he's like this expendable dude you're using to, to as a step up, but you intend to have killed at some point. Maybe you don't necessarily know when. But he's going down at some point. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's how maybe that's how Littlefinger thinks about Harry the Air. Because I agree, even just in terms of his own personal sexual desires, Littlefinger can't possibly intend for Harry the Air to last long. No, he's he's doomed, man. He's Harry is fucking doomed. And that's a great catch too on on uh, Chloe Lysandarber's part about him being a red Harding, so or red Herring. But uh, <laughs> but no, it's 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 cool. Um, but so it, it looks like that the. So for me, I'm very excited to see what's going to happen in the Winds of Winter Veil plot. I think it's going to be radically different from what we saw in Game of Thrones seasons five, six, and seven. I think we're going to see a lot more nuance, to use kind of an overused term term here, but a lot more nuance (laughs) as well as a lot more complexity in the narrative and allows us to allows Martin to both expand the world as well as to develop these characters further and further towards Sansa's potential and if I'm, I have to admit it I guess probable Queen of the North arc and <laughs> Littlefinger's ultimate downfall because I think ultimately this is leading to Sansa getting Littlefinger killed or Littlefinger overplaying his hand and getting killed because Sansa as many people have pointed out is Littlefinger's kryptonite he, she, he, she is going to be the person that is ultimately going to bring him down Littlefinger can't help but talk all about his plans and how clever and brilliant and smart he is and he's telling all this stuff to Sansa Sansa knows everything now and that's going to be ultimately his downfall which I am eagerly anticipating for and you know as much as I, I I'm not necessarily a fan of how the show adapted the Vale plot line and adapted Littlefinger in later seasons. I do think that it was very satisfying in season seven when Arya Stark killed the shit out of Littlefinger in the Winterfell Great Hall. That's something that I, I look. I sometimes go back to YouTube, but I'm having like a down day <laughs> and watch to kind of like bring my mood back sure. up. Sure. Beautifully said, sir. Top to bottom agreed. And it's going to be great to see that moment in the books as well, because I've, I've no doubt it's coming for us. Absolutely. So I think that pretty much wraps us up for A Game of Thrones, Catalan 6. Uh, thank you all for listening to this episode. As always, you can rate and review us on iTunes and Google Play. Check us out on Podbean and SoundCloud and review, listen to your fine podcasts. You can uh, follow us on social media at NotACastASOIAF on Twitter. Our email, if you want to shoot us a question or just a, a line of some kind, is NotACastASOIAF at gmail.com. Uh, if you haven't checked out our Patreon, you can check it out at patreon.com forward slash notacast A-S-O-I-A-F. Personally, you can find me at PoorQuentin on Twitter or at PoorQuentin.tumblr.com. And you can find me at Brenda Beefish on Twitter, Brenda Beefish on Reddit. And my website is warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com. So join us next time as the former and future Hand of the King visits a brothel. And then, of course, gets attacked in the streets by Jamie Lannister and again, I'm keeping saying this, but I'm just going to keep on saying this. In Game of Thrones, Eddard 9, one of my favorite chapters in the Game of Thrones. So thank you very much for listening, and we will see you guys next time. And take care, everybody. See you next week. <laughs>